Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Morning, everyone. Very glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live with us again on the ground in Tel Aviv, Israel. And overnight, President Biden returning to Washington after a trip in the war zone in Israel. Today, he is getting ready to give a primetime address to the nation as he pushes for wartime aid to Israel and Ukraine. But Congress is paralyzed right now with no Speaker of the House, so passing an aid package is impossible at the moment. President Biden says he clinched a deal with Egypt's president to start allowing trucks with desperately needed humanitarian aid to cross into Gaza, where millions of civilians are stuck inside that war zone and running out of food, water, and medicine. If you have an opportunity to alleviate the pain, you should do it, period. And if you don't, you're going to lose credibility worldwide. And uh, I think everyone understands that. The president also says U.S. intelligence backs up Israel's claim that a malfunctioning rocket fired by Palestinian militants caused the deadly blast at a hospital in Gaza, not an Israeli airstrike. We want to show you some new video. You're looking at it right now that has emerged. It's recorded by Al Jazeera. It appears to show a rocket fired from Gaza. If you watch it, it'll make a sharp turn back right there toward where it came from just moments before the explosion at the hospital. If you wait, you will see the flash right there. And CNN has geolocated a video where you can hear whatever that was. Listen. Now, CNN cannot independently verify what caused the blast. Meanwhile, Israel continues to pummel Gaza with airstrikes. The Palestinian Red Crescent released this video you're watching right now of huge explosions near a different hospital last night, where it says thousands of people are sheltering. Let's go straight to Aaron Burnett. He is live in Tel Aviv. Aaron, good morning to you. Um, that is significant, the Al Jazeera video on top of what CNN has geolocated. The IDF pointing to that Al Jazeera video, right, as additional evidence that they say this was not us. They, they are, absolutely, because in that video, you do see the rocket uh, go up and, and, and then sharply turn around. I mean, if you put it in slow motion, you, you can actually see that. So that was actually broadcast, right, as you point out, live on Al Jazeera. So they're pointing to that. Uh, the United States, as you just said, Phil, has said that it's confirmed that this was not fired from Israel. And uh, they have pointed themselves to missile, missile intelligence as well as signals intelligence. That could be indications like heat and light on the ground. But they're saying they've come to their own independent conclusion, although it is unclear whether the signals intelligence they're referring to is the same phone call that the IDF has put out. But they are making it very clear, the United States, that they have reached their own conclusion that this was not Israel's fault. And as the president of the United States said on his way back on Air Force One from leaving Israel last night, uh, he said he doesn't think that it was done on purpose by Islamic Jihad either, uh, but that nonetheless, they were the ones who did it. Uh, I want to bring in the IDF spokesman, Major Daron Spielman, this morning. And Major, um, good to speak with you again uh, on this morning in the United States. 
Um, there, there are reports from the Palestinian news agency uh, that Israeli airstrikes on the Rafah crossing that we, of course, have talked so much about has killed uh, 30 people. Are you ab- able to tell us anything about those strikes? I am not. I have no information uh, that such a thing took place. I will just say, and I'm, of course, check it and get back to you. I would take this as an example that uh, if, in fact, that did happen, the IDF will come forward and confirm. I have no information. This is the first that I'm hearing this. It's right here on the air. However, we have to be very cautious about reporting on these types of events. As we learned, and you just reported uh, just now about the hospital, immediately Hamas went out and announced to the entire world within seconds of that happening that we, Israel, did it. We went through a very professional process of showing that it wasn't us. So we just have to be very careful and uh, we will look into that. Just to be clear though, obviously in the hundreds of targets that Israel's striking a day in Gaza, it it would make sense. I know some of them have been down near that southern border because you have your own security or strategic reasons for doing that, whether you think that's linked to terrorists or whatever your reasons may be. Just to be clear that we all understand, Major, that there would be possible targets for Israel in the south of Gaza and by that Rafah border. Look, what I can tell you, Aaron, is that as we know, you have two a game here played by two different people with two different rules. All of our targets are military targets, every single one of them. At times, those targets are incredibly difficult to reach because Hamas is putting civilians in our way. This is the issue that's going on here. I don't think it's reasonable to assume anything. I think we have to check the facts on the ground. I do not trust any Hamas sources whatsoever. And I think we have to verify all outside sources. I can tell you we're going taking painstaking steps, including delaying everything that we're doing by five days to create a humanitarian corridor for Gazan civilians to reach the south. And Hamas is holding them at gunpoint in their homes. Um, Last night, a Gaza doctor, Dr. Hossam Abu Safiya, spoke to uh, our show to say what he's experiencing. It was a very, very brief uh, soundbite, uh, Major, because honestly, there's weak internet connection at his hospital and uh, to conserve power in his phone. Uh, So it was very short. But he taught no water, no electricity, no medications. Our situation is very, very, very bad. Uh, His voice is utterly exhausted. I mean, you can you you can tell. Uh, And then he had to abruptly hang up. Um, How how urgent, in your view, is aid and assistance to Gaza? Look, I again, I want to say very clearly, and I will answer your question, that this is a direct outcome of Hamas's raid inside Israel. We have to go back to where this began, because the IDF did not just wake up 13 days ago and decide to go into Gaza. Hamas crossed our border and created a horrific, a horrific violation of human rights by massacring our population. We're responding like any country would respond. And I understand, as much as we're doing for the Gazan civilians, it must be incredibly difficult right now. There is a, as the reporting, a difficulty getting supplies. And from our side, what we understand is, first of all, we're working towards that aid reaching them. But we have to understand that in, historically, that aid has gone to Hamas operatives. You and I both saw a shoulder-fired grenade launcher that was made out of humanitarian supplies, building supplies. When I showed you those armaments a few days ago, they've taken a lot of these supplies and we don't want yes. the terrorists to benefit from them. So it's not a simple situation. It's going to take time and we have to make sure it gets to the actual civilians who need it and not to the terrorists. 
And, and we did see that. And the, the, what, you, what you have gathered uh, is stunning from, from the attack itself. I understand that the number of confirmed families who may have hostages in Gaza, we had been talking about 150, then the IDF said 199. I understand this morning, Major, that that number has increased to 203. Obviously, we've been speaking to many of those families. Um, I spoke to one of them, the Regevs. They have both their son and daughter who were at that festival. They saw their son in a video from Hamas. Uh, their daughter, they thought, was dead, uh, and they've been waiting for information. Obviously, these families, many of them, have incredible frustration at the Israeli government as well because they want answers. I just wanted to play uh, something that Ilan Regev said to me, their father. The army, did they tell you they think Maya was with? They don't, sell, don't tell us nothing. We don't uh, know what's with Maya because we don't have video of Maya. In mm-hmm. two days, what with Maya? What with Maya? And what with Maya? Major, obviously, their, 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 their grief and their, it's profound, as you know. Uh, they did say that then on Monday, this Monday, they got a call from the IDF saying that the IDF knows that Maya, their daughter, is a hostage. So my question to you, Major, is I know you're not going to be able to tell us how you know these things, but is it safe to say Israel does know a lot? about these hostages and where they are and their condition, if families are still getting calls this week saying that Israel has confirmed their family members are hostages? So first of all, I very much appreciate you uh, bringing the Itai and my, their family to the screen. It is incredibly horrific for all of us. The information is unfolding as the days go on, both positive and negative. Last night in the area of Barry, uh, a, a group of workers went up into an attic and they found a mother and her five-year-old son that were burnt to a crisp. Uh, I'm sorry to say that on TV, but they were, they died. Uh, they were burned alive in the attic trying to hide from the terrorists. And so unfortunately, those are now two people that we understand were killed. We didn't know their whereabouts before. On a different note, more and more video, we do see video that Hamas is putting out. More and more people are uploading videos. So a picture is starting to emerge but it's so difficult because even today we're finding more bodies. There are bodies being uncovered. There are body parts you have to match DNA. This massacre was so vast, it's a horrifically painful process, mostly for the families, but for every Israeli. Indeed, and I, in Bayri the other day, I saw those body bags and, you know, you're still getting bodies out, I think is, is also... Uh, profoundly horrible thing to say, but important for people to know that missing may not mean hostage at this point. All right, Major, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. Major Jerome Spellman uh, here in Israel. Phil and Poppy, back to you. Thanks, Aaron. We'll get back to you shortly. But right now we want to turn to CNN military analyst, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling at the Magic Wall. This has been a 24-hour period where we have seen the protests, we have seen the scale of the outrage in the Arab world, but we've also seen a very significant push on both the Israeli side, but also the U.S. side, to try and lay out why they believe and why they are, have assessed uh, that this was not coming from the IDF, the rocket uh, that hit the hospital, but instead came from a militant group in the area. I, w- I want to start with what we kind of saw in terms of the blast and what that tells you. So this is kind of an annotated map. Uh, from the New York Times that shows where the blast occurred right here and some of the damage, the severe fire damage, where the roof tiles were blown off. This has been pointed to in conversations I've had with U.S. officials as this could not have been a JDAM. This could not have been an airstrike. Why? Well, you see, first of all, you see a very small crater. Uh, they, they do have close-in 
pictures of where that crater is, and it's just several inches into the ground. It's not the kind of thing you would see with a large JDAM, a 500-pound bomb. So when that rocket struck, it was probably a 122 millimeter, which is, I mean, it's a significant blast, but it doesn't cause that kind of damage. There's more shrapnel uh, than anything else. What we saw in the photos yesterday, or the films yesterday, was a large fireball after. Mm -hmm. that, that's the indicator Let, that there was fuel. And let's play that, mm -hmm. but also listen to the audio. There is the rocket going up along the... So that's the sound Poppy is referring to. Now we're going to show the video again that we showed at the start of the show mm -hmm. uh, from Al Jazeera and, and kind of walk people through the sound in this. Again, here is a rocket along a trajectory. Something happens in flight. It loses its power, and then the, the engine flames out, and it drops. And we were talking about that yesterday, where a, a rocket that doesn't have forward power anymore turns into the aerodynamic capabilities of a brick. It just drops. Then it explodes in a, in a very large fireball, much more than you would expect from a rocket. To the sound point, you know, you're talking about that, but Poppy's question about the sound that we're hearing, does that tell you anything, obviously, the drop like that? It, not really. No, I mean, you're, you're going to get that whoosh of a rocket going across the sky, if, if it's intercepted by an iron dome, you're gonna hear an explosion, but you don't hear an explosion on this one. It's just the rocket fizzles out. One of the things coming out of the president's trip yesterday is the what happens now, right? Mm -hmm. We have seen, again, the, the protests. We know that Israel is preparing for a significant uh, operation. It seems likely to be on the ground. You pointed to 2014, lessons learned from them about maybe giving a roadmap to some degree yeah. of what's next. Walk us through that. <laughs> well, we can first of all talk about Israel, what they might do. In 2014, Operation Protective Edge, Israel mobilized 70,000 soldiers. Today, they're mobilizing 300,000. They went in on three directions, one main uh, direction in the north toward Gaza City, but one in the center, one in the south. They fought mostly above ground, and they realized the extensiveness of the tunnels uh, that were there. There were 66 Israeli soldiers killed, seven Israeli citizens, about 2,100 Palestinians, Hamas, that were killed in that same period, according to the UN. So during the 10 years since then, there have been several after-action reports, something that militaries and think tanks do. And I, what I've tried to do on this slide is just combine what it said about Hamas, what they think Hamas is going to do based on reports, based on research, what was successful in 2014. The first thing they said, they're going to try and increase their rockets and expand greatly their tunnels and look for a larger conflict. In 2014, the conflict lasted 50 days. They're looking to make it last longer this time. Secondly, they're incorporating new tactics. We've seen that. We saw that on October the 7th. Uh, you know, put squads together, go by land, sea, and air into the main port. New technologies, anti-tank guided missiles, uh, new types of explosive devices. Get allies, Hezbollah, Syria, uh, others. But the most important one is they will perfect something they call the victim do doctrine. Anything that they can point toward Israel to continue to embarrass them and make them look like the heroes, Hamas will do. They, they've cited that doctrine several times, and it becomes important in, in an information age.
All right, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, we appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. President Biden held his first on-the-record conversation on Air Force One since his presidency began. We'll be joined by the CNN reporter who talked to him on board. And the president says Egypt has agreed to allow 20 trucks of humanitarian aid to travel into Gaza. Will it be enough? The United Nations says it's not even close. What's next? That's ahead. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden shared details of his high-stakes wartime visit to Israel with reporters on his way home. It's the first time the president has addressed the press pool on Air Force One since he was inaugurated. He took the opportunity to tout a breakthrough in negotiations with Egyptian President Sisi to allow into Gaza some desperately needed aid that has been piling up on Egypt's side of Rafah Crossing. He agreed that what he would do is open the gate on, uh, to do two things. One, let up to 20 trucks through to begin with. Uh, Satterfield, my ambassador, is down there in, uh, in, not down there, in Cairo now. He's going to coordinate this. He has my authority to do what is needed to get it done. Biden also discussed what he framed as blunt warnings he issued while meeting with Israeli leaders against blocking aid to Palestinians facing an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. CNN's Kevin Liptak is live at the White House with more. Kevin, you were on the trip. You were press pool for CNN. You were on Air Force One. Um, You're the person I always talk to with the encyclopedic knowledge of not just this presidency, but most presidencies ever. Uh, This is a rarity. This doesn't happen with this president, uh, unlike perhaps some of his uh, predecessors. Why do you think that why do you think he came back to talk to you guys? Yeah, certainly he had a lot on his mind on this long flight back from Tel Aviv. And it was a surprise to see him sort of pop up uh, in the door of the press cabin. And it's not something that we've seen him do uh, very often. He had come back to read out that phone call that he had had with the Egyptian president. But really, in listening to him and uh, watching him, he, he really did want to sort of read out the entire visit. He had a lot on his mind. And he wanted to put in his own words sort of how he felt this historic trip uh, to a war zone had gone because this was not necessarily the trip that he had originally set out to take. It was overshadowed in some ways by that devastating hospital bombing in Gaza. He did have to cancel a planned stop in Jordan to meet with Arab leaders. And I did want to ask him if he was disappointed in that. And I was interested to hear his answer. Listen to what he said. Are you disappointed that you had to cancel the stop in Jordan? No. Look, I came to get something done. I got it done. Not many people thought we could get this done. And not many people want to be associated with failure. 
So certainly the president very uh, confident in the outcomes of this trip. Uh, but I think when you talk to aides privately, they do acknowledge that the real results are still in the works. It will not be clear for several days, several weeks potentially, whether this trip was a success, whether the president's advice and warnings to the Israelis about the scope of their response uh, were heeded. But certainly I think the president very confident as he was coming home yesterday that he was able uh, to secure some accomplishments on this visit, guys. Kevin, I, I found that, of course, he asked a great question, but the answer was really candid and illuminating. It was, it was also interesting that he said after that call with the Egyptian president, El-Sisi, quote, really stepped up, as did Bibi. But now the proof is, does the aid come through, right? Yeah, and that will be seen in the coming hours, really, coming days, as these 20 trucks that the president said he had secured potentially start crossing the border into Gaza. But I think for the president, you know, the objectives of this trip were not enormous. He did not fly over there to try and broker a ceasefire. He didn't mm -hmm. necessarily fly over to try and secure the release uh, of these hostages. His objective was really to show this utmost support for Israel in this time of national trauma. And you did see that when he was on the ground there this full-scale embrace uh, of Benjamin, a literal embrace of Benjamin Netanyahu, but also these emotional uh, encounters with people who had been touched by the events, by a grandmother who had been barricaded uh, at gunpoint, by a man who recounted these horrific traumas, the president really feeling the emotion of this visit. So I think certainly for the Israelis, this was a highly successful visit by the president. But behind the scenes, I think you did see the president ask what the White House called these tough questions of Netanyahu talking about what goes happens uh, in the days and weeks ahead. And you heard him afterwards come out, deliver kind of an extraordinary statement talking about the mistakes that the United States made after 9-11, talking about the importance of having clarity going forward. Certainly, it's very easy to hear and imagine the president asking Netanyahu that in private as well. Kevin, can you take us behind the scenes? This was not just for his 9-11 comments were extraordinary. This trip itself was extraordinary. It is a war zone. It is an active war zone. It's the first time a U.S. president has visited Israel in the middle of a war. The decision to, hap to do this happened over a very short period of time. You weren't allowed to tell us where you were most of the time, which is rare for a pool reporter. What was happening behind the scenes from your vantage point? Yeah, and I think heading into this trip, what the White House had seen were these previous leaders, including uh, Secretary of State Blinken, but also the German Chancellor, when they arrived in Tel Aviv, they heard air raid sirens. There was sort of evidence of this conflict at close range. And in fact, when we were flying over, we got this briefing from uh, White House staff about what to do if an air raid siren goes off when you're standing next to Air Force One, when you're in the motorcade. That has never happened before, obviously. When we were on the ground, Things actually seemed relatively calm. As the motorcade was going through Tel Aviv, we saw people on the beach playing volleyball. We saw people taking a jog. And so the president necessarily didn't see the conflict at close range, but certainly he heard about it uh, from all of his encounters while he was there. All right. It was a heck of a 24 hours. Kevin Liptak, we appreciate you bringing it to us. Thank you. So let's go to our chief international anchor, Christian Amapour. Christian, the president said very clearly, I came to get something done. I got it done. What do you think he got done? 
So I just want to say that I spoke to one of the former senior State Department officials on the program yesterday, and he said the president was delivered a very bad hand, mm -hmm. which he played very skillfully. Mm -hmm. So in other words, not raising all the expectations. But yes, this, I, this idea of unblocking the Rafa crossing is paramount, really, really important. But remember, it is only a test. It's 20 vehicles and apparently won't be able to go in until tomorrow. At least that's the start. They do have to fix roads because there have been Israeli airstrikes. So it's not even fuel, we understand, coming in, which is what all the humanitarians tell us is vitally necessary to, you know, purify water, to run hospitals, to do all those kinds of humanitarian uh, needs. But if those 20 trucks do come in, then that will be important. This is what the uh, UN's chief humanitarian uh, official told me yesterday. It's the safety of aid, which is as important as its dependability. We can do it because we have the aid, we have the people, we have the trucks, and we certainly have the will. Do you know, UNRWA has 14,000 staff still in Gaza. 14,000 staff who haven't left and are still there working bravely, along with many, many others. And, the, 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 and, and these people are available to deliver according to the usual mandate. We need clarity about the circumstances of that aid program, and then we need to get moving. So urgent, obviously, and of course the, the conditions are that none of it can by, be diverted to Hamas. But don't forget also that uh, Palestinians who've been told to move from the north are under bombardment still in the south occasionally. They're asking where is a safe zone? Where can we hide even if we want to get away from the airstrike? So it's still a very, very dire situation. And remember, 20 trucks is just a test. It's a fraction of what they need on a daily basis. Chris Young, Kevin Liptak just made a great point. The, the extraordinary statement in President Biden's remarks after his visit with the prime minister, with his war cabinet, about the mistakes in his view that were made in the wake of 9-11, basically saying, don't let the, the, the rage consume you in this moment, despite the fact everyone can identify with the why. Why do you think he said that? Well, because he knows what happened. The backlash of that war in Iraq, even, even the, the post-war in Afghanistan, continues to reverberate all across the world and across the United States as well. And so he did say, don't let rage blind you to what is justice and accountability. And remember, this is a warning, I'm paraphrasing, a warning from a friend, advice from a friend, uh, that what we did was mistaken uh, in many, many aspects. Look at Afghanistan after 20 years, it is now back in the hands of Islamic extremists. Those are the Taliban. Look at Iraq. It is still unstable. Look at that whole region um, that the, you know, the U.S. and Britain here, the papers are covered with this warning. That seems to be the big takeaway because Britain went into that Iraq war as well and is continuing to, to you know, suffer the consequences like the rest of the world. So these, this was an extraordinary comment to be made, advice to a friend, because in previous rounds in the Gaza-Israel wars, it's always hardened and more militarized and more, you know, militancy has come out of each one of those. Yeah, certainly. And I, as Phil was saying before, if he said that in public, imagine what he may have said to that effect to Netanyahu behind closed doors. Christian, we'll get back to you soon. Thank you very much. Well, new CNN investigation reveals a trove of highly specific Hamas battle plans, including detailed maps that were found on the bodies of Hamas militants.
they knew basically the size of our uh, uh, security team. They knew about other three or four entrances to the kibbutz. It sounds like they knew everything. They knew everything. Welcome back. I'm Erin Burnett, live in Tel Aviv this morning. President Biden is back in the United States after making that historic trip here. He is now getting ready to give a primetime speech to the nation tonight. Biden expected uh, to push for wartime aid to both Israel and Ukraine. It is a big, encompassing speech. It is going to be about American values and what these wars stand for. The president hoping to deter wider escalation. Right now, the Israeli military says there has been a, quote, significant escalation, not in Gaza, but by Hezbollah in the north, coming from Lebanon in a growing battle there. The IDF says Hezbollah has fired numerous anti-tank missiles from Lebanon into Israel, where there has been a massive buildup of Israeli forces along that northern border. They also say that uh, Hezbollah forces have attempted infiltrations, actually physically, into Israel uh, with forces. Meanwhile, pro-Palestinian and protests continue across the Middle East and, frankly, around the world in the U.S. and Europe. The demonstrations ramping up since the hospital explosion in Gaza, even though Israel has denied responsibility for the blast and provided evidence uh, to make that clear. We are learning that the precision of Hamas's assault on Israel, uh, though, was no accident. In fact, we've got video and documents obtained by CNN that show that the militant group had a shocking amount of detailed information about the Israeli communities where they slaughtered more than 1,400 people. In fact, if you just heard the IDF moments ago telling us they found two people last night in an attic in Barry, a mother and child huddled together, burnt to a crisp. And the material we understand includes detailed attack plans, specific information about security and homes, and even the best places to hold hostages. And we do caution you that some of the images here that we've obtained are Graphics. CNN's Matthew Chance is live in northern Israel uh, with more this morning. So, Matthew, I guess let's just start with how Hamas got all this information and obviously, you know, what it is. And clearly it took a long, a long time to put all this together. Yeah, it, it took a long time for Hamas to collect all this information. Um, there, there are ways, the ways in which they do that, they did that, are still being looked at. But, you know, we spent a week collecting all these various reports and, and bits of intelligence together from Israeli government officials, one of the sources there, um, um, first responders from Israel, and, of course, Israelis who, were witnessed, who witnessed the attacks at first hand. We built up this it really disturbing picture of the amount of intelligence that Hamas had acquired on the Israeli communities they attacked or targeted. Oh, CNN has gathered chilling new insights and details on the Hamas assault inside Israel, including disturbing video taken by the attackers themselves as they rampaged through Israeli homes, killing on sight and then being killed. <laughs> Searches of their dead bodies revealing a trove of highly specific Hamas battle plans, including these detailed maps now shared with CNN by the Israeli government, showing communities near Gaza, like Kafar Aza, targeted by the attackers. <laughs> these were the terrifying scenes inside as Hamas gunmen recorded themselves moving freely through the gardens of Israeli homes. 
code red. Code red, the Israeli loudspeaker blares in Hebrew, punctuating the sporadic gunfire. After the attack, Israeli first responders saw bullet holes and bloodstains in room after room, in what looks like a coldly methodical killing spree. But while hundreds of Israelis were killed, some Israeli communities managed to repel the Hamas gunmen and save lives. At Kibbutz Mefalsim, also near Gaza, residents pushed back a Hamas attack and found documents on the bodies of the militants they killed with disturbing, highly accurate intelligence on their hopes. Including precise numbers of armed guards there. Regional Defence Force, at least 20 residents, one document reads, and 10 soldiers. They knew basically the size of our uh, uh, security team. They knew about other three or four entrances to the kibbutz. It sounds like they knew everything. They knew everything. Uh, where the generators are, uh, they, they knew where the armory is, uh, they knew about uh, rural uh, roads around the kibbutz. Security footage shows how Hamas gunmen killed an Israeli outside the kibbutz gates before being repelled. Even with detailed intelligence on their targets, not every Hamas objective was achieved. Nearby kibbutz Saad wasn't even attacked, although we now have documentary evidence that Hamas intended to inflict the maximum possible human casualties there and to hold hostages. A highly detailed street map found on another Hamas gunman and obtained by CNN shows individual buildings in Saad identified and assessed for their military value. The communal kitchen, for example, is described as the main place suitable for holding hostages. Inside the guard room, the soldiers must be neutralised, the Hamas instructions say. While the kibbutz dental clinic is designated a place for first aid for both enemies and friends. Israeli residents of Saad say they also found that level of detail astounding. Shockingly, the details are very accurate. The map is a map of our kibbutz. It's very accurate. It's horribly accurate. If they'd have come to your settlement, they would have known exactly where to go, exactly where to cause the most damage. Yes, and we now see that their, their goal was to take hostages, including children. Israeli officials say they found other documents too that advise attackers to kill anyone posing a threat or causing a distraction, to keep captives away from arms or means of suicide and to use them as cannon fodder. It is a dark turn. Even for a group seen here parading before the attacks. That's come to symbolize the uncompromising face of Palestinian resistance and violence against Israel. Israeli officials say a document referencing ISIS and Al-Qaeda, which CNN has not been able to authenticate, was found on one Hamas gunman killed during this attack on Kibbutz Biri. The document given to CNN by a senior Israeli government official praises jihad against Jews and Crusaders. Israeli officials say that's evidence Hamas is increasingly influenced by global jihadi ideology, an assessment many experts have dismissed. But in the wake of the unprecedented brutality of these attacks, 
US officials tell CNN the Hamas threat may now be reassessed. Well, Aaron, security experts here in Israel that we've spoken to say this wasn't just a Hamas success, it was also a palace, sorry, an Israeli failure as well. Because first of all, they took the eye off the ball, their eye off the ball, didn't have enough boots on the ground to physically defend these Israeli communities um, near the Gaza Strip. And uh, according to these security experts, had too much of a reliance on technology and not enough on human intelligence. An incredible statement in this day and age, right? And we, we know human intelligence still the most crucial of everything in a world where everyone relies on technology, uh, signals intelligence, AI. Matthew Chance, thank you very much. Phil. We're going to continue to cover these new developments in the Middle East. But here in the U.S., a murder confession from the man long suspected of killing American teenager Natalie Holloway. How he says he did it. That's next. This morning, the painful mystery behind the disappearance of Natalie Holloway appears to have been solved. Court filings of Joran Vandersloot include a confession of a fight he had with the Alabama teenager on the beach in Aruba nearly 20 years ago. CNN's Gene Casares has been following every single twist and turn of this story and is here with the brand new details. You've been following this for years. Since it what began, happened? Yes, I've what been happened? Following it. it was so long ago. Jorn van der Sloot has, he was the last one to see her, and he has given so many stories through the years, and they have all been lies, and he's admitted they were lies. In 2010, he told Natalie Holloway's family, give me $250,000 and I will tell you exactly what I did with her, with the body. And so a family representative, their attorney went over to Aruba. He said she's buried right in this area, right here. It was a lie, but he took that money, went to Peru, and murdered someone, a young girl the same age as Natalie, and is serving a murder sentence. But then came extortion charges, and the U.S. has been working with Peru to get him over here to face them. He flew here in May, and they said, we'll give you a deal. Plea deal, you plead guilty, but you've got to tell us what happened to her, and it's got to be the truth, and we are going to have a polygraph by verified agents. He said, here's what happened. We've never heard this before was walking with her on the beach. We were kissing. I wanted to go a step further. She said no. I kept going. She hit me. I hit her in the head. And then on the beach, there was a cinder block. And I took that cinder block and I hit her. He goes on to say, at this point, she was deceased. I decided to take her and to put her in the ocean. So I grab her. I half up, half pull, and half walk with her into the ocean. I push her off. I walk up to about my knees in the ocean, and I push her off into the sea. And yeah, after that, I get out and I walk home. Natalie Holloway's mother, Beth Holloway, got to give a victim impact statement feet away from Jorn Vandersloot in that co courtroom yesterday. She talked about it outside right after it happened. Take a listen. I think in this long ending nightmare, was able to express things to him that I had been wanting to tell him as far as, you know, telling him who he is. And he is a killer. He is a killer. He will always be the killer. He will always be now the black mark in Aruba. And the sentence was 20 years. But you say, OK, plea deal. So what's in it for him? Right. Because you're supposed to get a benefit, right? It's going to be concurrent. It is going to run at the same time that the murder sentence continues to run in Peru. He'll be going back to Peru. But I read the legal documents and the fine print says if Peru would decide to let him out early, because at this point his, his exit date is 2045, 
If they let him out early, he'll have to serve the remainder of that time in a U.S. prison. A remarkable turn on a story. You've covered every step of the way. Jean Casares, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, a Republican lawmaker who pulled her support from Jim Jordan in his bid for speaker now saying she's received death threats for her vote. Where the speaker race stands, that's next. And some House Democrats are pushing President Biden to urge restraint by Israel as it prepares for a possible ground invasion of Gaza. We're going to be joined next by a House Democrat about the split in his party. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. A third vote for the Speaker of the House could happen today. Jim Jordan failed to win the speakership yesterday, faring even worse than he did in the first round of voting. Yet, as of now, he's staying in the race, even with deep divisions within his conference. Multiple Jeffries. detractors of the congressman say they have been receiving angry phone calls and threatening messages since they voted against him. Here's what Jordan had to say about that. It never happened. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's just wrong. That's yeah. wrong. We don't want it to happen to anyone. And now some GOP members are saying they are preparing to try and step up to the role with others pushing to expand the powers of the interim speaker, Patrick McHenry. This was the scene inside the U.S. Capitol yesterday. Some 300 people were arrested at this protest demanding a ceasefire by Israel in Gaza. It was organized by a group called Jewish Voice for Peace. And outside, one of the speakers at the rally, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, took aim at President Biden for his support of Israel. President Biden, not all America's with you on this one. And you need to wake up and understand that. We are literally, literally watching people commit genocide. Congresswoman Tlaib is part of a group of House progressives who signed a resolution this week that, quote, urges the Biden administration to immediately call for a ceasefire. Joining us is another Democrat from Congress, uh, Jonathan Jackson of Illinois. He's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He visited Israel last month. He met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and signed that resolution this week. Congressman, thank you for being with us this morning. I wonder if you agree with Congresswoman Tlaib that President Biden is out of step with at least some of America. On this. What I'm focused on is the fact that there should be an immediate ceasefire. I agree with the United uh, Nations Secretary General and a growing body of people that want to see hostages released, want to see humanitarian aid sent into the Gaza Strip. That's our focus right now. We want to have a de-escalation of the violence. And so what we're seeing is mounting death tolls, maybe 1,400 Israelis that have been killed, over 3,000 Palestinians. And as the Israeli government gets ready for a ground offensive, we're very much concerned about how do we protect the life of innocent civilians. Hamas is not the Palestinians. The two need to be separated. This was an intelligence failure that we first have to address. Currently, I'd like to see stronger defense provided for Israel. I'd like to see um, justice, if you will, 
for the humanitarian efforts for the those in Palestine. A million people have been dislocated in the last week, in the last 11 days. They have to get aid. Water is running short, food is running short, and there's medical equipment. There's medical supplies at the border they cannot get into the Gaza area. The people are really caged in now. So we're seeking diplomacy, the deterrence of the warships, and to bring a de-escalation into the entire region. I will say President Biden is confident after his conversation with President al-Sisi of Egypt that that aid will get in. But you're right, we have to see it get in. To your call for a ceasefire, your signing of this resolution calling for one this week, does that not contradict the resolution you signed on October 11th, presented by Congressman Meeks and McCall, that, quote, reaffirms Israel's right to self-defense? Well, defense is not necessarily on the offense. It is a protective measure. Diplomacy is where I would like to see strengthened. As we speak right now, the United States does not have a confirmed ambassador from the United States to Israel. We do not have a confirmed ambassador from the United States to Egypt. We should strengthen our diplomacy efforts. Right, but the, the question is, as Israel continues to be attacked by Hamas, their response to that, do the two not contradict one another? I understand your point on defense. But Israel is saying this is our 9-11 moment. Well, if you look at the consequences of what the United States did at 9-11, we first created the Department of Homeland Security. Let's first address what was the intelligence failure. The Israeli defense uh, force is outstanding. How did this information go by? How was it missed? Uh, That's one part of it. The second part is we want to make sure that all of the uh, weapons are degraded, that there is no more uh, of the weapons that are being attacked into Israel. How will we get to that solution? We'll have to go through information and get to the deterrent. What we currently have right now is great dislocation of a million people. If we cannot fix that, we're going to have a larger problem. How important do you think clarity is in terms of information? One example is the intelligence that, that the United States has gathered on the bombing of that hospital in Gaza this week. Your colleague, Congressman Rashid Tlaib, also tweeted this week, Israel, Israel just bombed the hospital, killing 500 Palestinians just like that. She's standing by it. She has not taken it down. And that is counter to what U.S. intelligence tells us, what the president tells us. Does that concern you? Yes, it does. So there is uh, information that's moving around at a rapid pace. There's disinformation that's going on. Um, I've not seen any intelligence to give me uh, satisfaction of the uh, validity on which side did what. So... I have no further comment on that. But more importantly is that this information in our modern era of warfare can be used as weaponry. So, of course, people are going to say things in their own, um, in their own benefit. That's why it is so imperative that we have de-escalation now. We have to take the swelling out. We have to bury the dead. We have to get the hostages returned. That's my priority. That's paramount. We have to get humanitarian aid into the Gaza, and we have to make sure that Israel is safe. So... Congressman, you had an impossible conversation this week with the father of Wadea Al-Fayoum. He is a six-year-old boy in Illinois who was stabbed to death by the landlord of the building for being Arab. And we have these pictures of him. There's even one photograph. That is a half a heart that he is making. And his father says that his father would complete the heart with his son. It was just his birth... It was just his birthday. I just wanted to ask you about being at his funeral and speaking to his father. 
So I went to the repast, if you will, the event that happens after the funeral. I was commiserated with the father and the community, uh, but to be in the aftermath of a six-year-old child that was stabbed over 26 times. His mother is still um, recovering. She's been multiply stabbed. This was a landlord, a person that, that knew the young child. He heard so much vicious talk, dehumanization, of a group of people, and somehow he uh, conflated and related Hamas to this six-year-old child and ended up stabbing him. So that 72-year-old man that was friends with the child the day before mm. had an overdose of some toxic information, and it compelled him. So I want terrorism to stop. That is the first act of terror on our shores. Mm. This can easily spiral out of control. That's why I'm asking for people of good, of good faith and good region to like de-escalate. It is hopeful to see the Prime Minister of the UK going into Israel to talk. It's helpful to see President Macron of France going into the UK to talk. It's great to see the United Nations Secretary General going into Israel. I, am, I have a great deal of optimism because more people are talking. I applaud President Biden for having the courage to go into a war zone to talk to a friend. The United States has a special friendship relationship with Israel. And when you have a special friend, you're able to talk to them. You're able to give them some additional insight. You can also share with them things that they may not want to hear that can be in their best interest. So for President Biden enforcing diplomacy and extending a hand of friendship and going in a time of need, I congratulate him. Congressman Jonathan Jackson, thank you so much. And I'm sure it was very meaningful to the family uh, in Illinois to have you there. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Well, tonight, President Biden will speak directly to the American people from the Oval Office. Only the second time a primetime Oval Office address in his presidency. What to expect as he seeks more funds for the wars in Israel and Ukraine. We also have new details this morning on the investigation into the hospital blast in Gaza, how the U.S. made its determination that Israel is not to blame. will be addressing the nation from the Oval Office in prime time. The most powerful person in the world uplifted the spirits in this country. Egypt's President al-Sisi will allow 20 trucks through the Rafah crossing. It's in your own interest to allow this humanitarian aid. The Israelis basically said, yes, we agree. We have very little resources right now, and I just worry for them. We might be the next people that we're going to be killed. The U.S. government now assesses that Israel was not responsible for the explosion. These aren't calm days, of course. You've seen those protests in the region. After 9-11, while we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. We have to make sure we destroy Hamas war machines so that they cannot ever threaten us again. Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is on the ground in Tel Aviv, Israel. Arlette Sines is standing by at the White House, and Sam Kiley is in London. This morning, President Biden is back in Washington and getting ready to give a primetime address to the nation after returning from the war zone in Israel. We're expecting him to make a major push for wartime aid to Israel and Ukraine. But passing an aid package on Capitol Hill, all but impossible on Capitol Hill right now, Congress is paralyzed with no speaker. Now, during his trip, President Biden says he was able to strike a deal with Egypt's president to allow some trucks with desperately needed humanitarian aid to start crossing into Gaza as soon as tomorrow, where millions of civilians are stuck and running out of food, water, and medicine. If you have an opportunity to alleviate the pain, you should do it, period. And if you don't, you're going to lose credibility worldwide. And uh, I think everyone understands that. 
President Biden says U.S. intelligence backs up Israel's claim that a malfunctioning rocket fired by Palestinian militants, Islamic Jihad, caused the deadly blast at a hospital in Gaza instead of an Israeli airstrike. New video has emerged. This is captured by Al Jazeera, what you're watching, and it appears to show a rocket fired from Gaza make a sudden and sharp turn back toward where it came from just moments before the explosion at the hospital. CNN has also geolocated a video where you can hear whatever caused that blast. Listen. CNN cannot independently verify what caused the blast. Meanwhile, Israel continues to pummel Gaza with airstrikes. The Palestinian Red Crescent released this video. You're watching it now. Huge explosions near a different hospital last night where it says thousands of people are sheltering. We have team coverage from Israel to the White House. Let's start with Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv. Uh, Aaron, you just spoke with the IDF spokesperson about speaking to the families of what they now say are 203 hostages or those that are missing uh, believed to be held in Gaza. What did he say? All right. So, you know, what's interesting, Phil, here, first of all, that number 203 hostages, that number was 199 for the past few days and prior to that 150. So Israel has increased the number of hostages uh, that it says are being held in Gaza. Also speaking to one of the families, they told us that they were told just on Monday they have two children missing. One, they had seen video of their child with Hamas fighters in a truck. The other child they thought was dead. They had no idea. The IDF called them on Monday to say, we know your child is a hostage. They didn't say how they knew. They wouldn't talk about proof of life. But they have a lot of intelligence, it appears, on these hostages. And just moments ago, when I spoke to uh, Major Jerome Spielman, he is with the IDF. He told me that they are still, even now, the soldiers who are in these kibbutzim, and we were in Beirut, we walked through and we talked with you all about how we could smell death, a very pervasive and unmistakable smell to any human being, human death. Well, part of the reason we can smell death is because there are still bodies there. There are still bodies. We saw body bags going out. And this uh, spokesperson for the IDF, in fact, says there's bodies even found last night. Here's what he said. Last night in the area of Barry, uh, a, a group of workers went up into an attic and they found a mother and her five-year-old son that were burnt to a crisp. Uh, I'm sorry to say that on TV, but they were. They died uh, they were burned alive in the attic trying to hide from the terrorists. And even today, we're finding more bodies. There are bodies being uncovered. There are body parts you have to match DNA. This massacre was so vast, it's a horrifically painful process. It is horrifically painful. The soldiers there in Beiri, where they found those bodies, you know, one of them, Poppy and Phil, talking about, you know, the exact house where he found a baby on her back shot in the head execution style. I have talked to others who say they have seen that as well with babies, but they are still finding bodies. And I will say also one significant thing is when they found those bodies last night of that mother and her five-year-old son, and you can only imagine them preserved for eternity, huddled together, burnt to a crisp, as horrific as that is, they were not included in the hostage number before. Because when those bodies were found, they did not decrease the hostage number, which may indicate that Israel has a greater visibility on who really is a hostage uh, than many are aware of, uh, because they weren't counting those people as possible hostages. Uh, they, they, they were not. And obviously now they have confirmed two more deaths in this horrific uh, massacre. And this comes as President Biden is set to deliver a primetime Oval Office address tonight, pushing for continued funding. And it is not just for Israel. 
Israel. It is also for Ukraine, where that war wages on as we speak. The president expected to make the argument that supporting both countries is a deep matter of U.S. national security when the world is at an inflection point. Our Arlette Sines is live at the White House with more. And Arlette, the president obviously coming off of a trip to Israel yesterday. What is the what does he hope to accomplish with this speech tonight? Obviously, Congress can do nothing because there's no speaker. But what does he hope to accomplish tonight? Well, Aaron, President Biden is hoping that Congress will eventually approve aid for both Ukraine and Israel. But there is a big question about how Congress will decide to proceed with this. And the president will be delivering this primetime address in the Oval Office, a rare evening Oval Office remarks, a fresh off his trip to Israel. Part of uh, the goal during that trip was trying to learn more about the needs Israel will need as they plan their fight against Hamas. And the president is expected to make a direct pitch to the American people about why it's important to not just offer support to Israel, but also to Ukraine. One administration official saying the president will make the argument that the cost of inaction and the cost of walking away is much higher. Now, it comes as sources have told us that the president is expected to ask for $100 billion in funding for Israel, Ukraine, and other matters as well. And it comes as we have seen polls that have shown that there is large sympathy for the Israeli people as they are uh, reeling from this attack by Hamas and planning their ongoing fight. Uh, there's also polling that shows that Ameri nearly a third of Americans believe that the U.S. is uh, providing the right amount of assistance to Israel at this time, 36% saying that they're unsure. Now, while that poll doesn't exactly address the issue of funding, there has been uh, bipartisan support up on Capitol Hill for ensuring that Israel has support going forward. The U.S. already provides about $4 billion a year uh, over a 10-year period based on a previous memorandum. But then there's the question of Ukraine, which has a much higher uphill battle it is facing in Congress. The majority of Americans, according to an August poll, uh, believe that Congress should not authorize more aid to Ukraine. But the president, while his trip to Israel largely had focused on uh, trying to rally worldwide support, showing that the U.S. will long-term support Israel, today he faces the task of trying to convince the American public to not just support Israel, but also Ukraine, as these yeah. two fights could go on for quite some time. Arlette, thank you very much from the White House. And this comes as a U.S. intelligence assessment now supports Israel's claim that it was not responsible for the deadly blast at a Gaza hospital. This is an independent analysis by the United States. They say using their own intelligence and missile interception technology. These officials say the explosion was caused by a misfired Palestinian missile. CNN's Sam Kiley is live in London for us. And Sam, obviously... What happened at that hospital is reverberating around the world. And while facts may not matter on the ground to people's passions and emotions, you have been taking a deeper dive into exactly what happened and what those facts are. What are you learning? Well, you're absolutely right, Erin. And uh, sadly, this kind of an incident, in all probability, may well happen again. Let's hope not with the death toll of some 471 people, an astronomical death toll, uh, if that is uh, further confirmed. But... Uh, uh, yes, we've had the United States backing the IDF position that this was not them that uh, bombed the grounds of the uh, church-run hospital in Gaza City. But CNN, as we should, conducted our own investigation. A blast of immediate strategic impact. Jordan cancelled a summit with the US, Egypt and the Palestinian Authority as news of mass casualty in Gaza emerged. 
Now, with the Hamas-controlled Gaza's health ministry saying the death toll is over 470 from an explosion in the courtyard of this church-run hospital, there are protests around the world. And in this war, the truth is unlikely to emerge quickly. The US, based on its own analysis of the evidence, including secret intelligence, has supported Israel's version of events. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. Israel blames Hamas and the Islamic Jihad, a rival Islamist militant group. Islamic Jihad, Hamas and other Palestinian groups say Israel did it. CNN has geolocated videos and stills from the scene and shown all the available authentic evidence to two weapons experts. They agree that the explosion is likely not caused by an airdrop bomb or even a guided missile. I would initially rule out a heavy airdrop bomb. The, the type of crater that I've seen on the imagery so far isn't large enough to be um, the type of bomb that we've, that we've seen dropped in, in the region on, on many occasions. Could it have been a Hellfire-type missile? A, a guided munition? Hellfire, I'm doubtful about. Preliminary CNN analysis of the crater suggests that the projectile hit the courtyard outside the hospital from somewhere to the southwest. The Israel Defense Forces say they believe the disaster was caused by the misfire of a missile fired from the southwest of the hospital. Could this have been a, a rocket fired from Gazan territory that went wrong? It could very well have been a rocket fired from Gazan territory, but again, we'll only know that when the remnants are definitively identified uh, uh, and, and compared to other types of weapon systems or munitions that are being fired in the area. A senior UN weapons expert who asked to remain anonymous agreed. But in Gaza, many blame Israel and its allies. People who fled considered the hospital as a safe shelter for them. They didn't find any other place to go, but they struck people with those Israeli and American rockets. This is a war crime. It's a big crime killing children and women. An independent investigation would need to be done on the ground to determine the cause of the blast, which is impossible under the current Israeli bombardment and unlikely under Hamas. You've worked in Gaza before, Chris. Have you investigated rocket misfires in the past? Yes, I've tried to investigate rocket misfires in the past, most certainly. Um, but on the on the few occasions this has happened, um, the local authorities did not not give me free access to the area, or, or, or were very unhappy that I was trying to try to to investigate something that had clearly gone wrong from their point of view. Amid the ongoing bloodshed, entrenched supporters of either side are more likely to believe what they want now regardless. Now, Erin, uh, clearly there, uh, there's an old cliche about the truth getting lost in the fog of war, but that is the truth very often, particularly in places like Gaza. And I think we all have to remember that armchair uh, analysis or indeed claims by belligerents, whether it's the Israelis or Hamas or other uh, groups that are fighting there, should be treated to the sort of rigorous analysis that uh, we're so well known for. Yes, Sam, thank you very much. And Phil, to Sam's point, right, we know Israel puts out a number every day of how many times they say they strike Gaza. It's hundreds of times a day. They've also put out what they say are more than 400, 450 rockets from Gaza that misfired and landed in Gaza. So when you just think about the sheer amount coming into Gaza every single day, 
it is very hard, to Sam's point, to imagine that there will not be another tragedy like this one if this continues going on like this. Yeah, almost a certainty. Aaron, we appreciate it. Joining us now, Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, who serves on the Intelligence and Armed Services Committee. He attended Wednesday's classified briefing on Israel with top defense and intelligence officials. Senator, appreciate your time. I want to start with where Sam ended. Do you have any doubt after the classified briefing uh, that the U.S. and Israeli assessment that this was not uh, an Israeli airstrike is accurate? We believe the assessment uh, is accurate, uh, both from what the Israelis have told us, but more importantly, what our own IC community has been able to develop on their own. Uh, the evidence is very clear uh, what happened. And uh, at this stage of the game, without revealing, uh, you know, the sources and the methods, it's the information that you're, that you're sharing with your viewers right now is accurate. The one thing that the U.S. side has not been as definitive on is attribution. The Israelis have said it, it's uh, from uh, Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. U.S. officials have been more reticent to do that. Why? Well, I can't tell you that, that uh, uh, to identify specifically which particular group would have released it would be based upon which group was in control of that part uh, of Gaza at the time that that missile was fired. Uh, whether it was Hamas or another group, I can't tell you that. But we do know where it came from, and uh, the evidence is, is very clear. Senator, I was struck reading the, the comments of senators coming out of the briefing yesterday. Uh, oftentimes, these are not always very substantive or necessarily very appreciated by senators when the administration comes up and gives these briefings. This was different. Senators came out and were very clear that it was substantive in the information, in the context, uh, in what was delivered. Why? The degree of confidence that we have in the information that was provided was increasing. Um, we had a, a, an IC meeting the day before, an intelligence committee meeting the day before, and the preponderance of the evidence that was delivered on that day was consistent. The following day, they had a higher degree of confidence that the accuracy was there, and uh, they were able to share in that closed meeting how we were able to get that information. And so when you can back up not just what the facts are, and then show how you got those facts, uh, it really does help. And so for members of the Senate to receive that much of an in-depth briefing was very, very helpful. Uh, they don't want to tell the world how we get our information because then that jeopardizes our ability to get that information in the future. But I think for the vast majority of the members that were there, it was very helpful to understand how we obtained that information and uh, how we coordinated uh, with the Israelis to take their information, but how we got our own information as well. Senator, President Biden is expected to give a primetime speech uh, tonight, just came back from the trip to Israel. How do you assess his performance has been since this crisis started? Well, to begin with, any time that we talk about a foreign event, I think we want to rally behind our president. In this particular case, the fact that he took the time to actually go there during a time of war said that we were committed to Israel, which is consistent with our policy. It's consistent with the, the way that the House and the Senate feel as well. And so in that respect, we are sending a message to the Israelis and to the rest of the world that we will stand by our allies. That was a very important item to achieve. The second piece on this and the part that, that we wish we could do a better job of is to send the message uh, to Iran that we will hold them accountable when the people that they are funding, the people that, uh, that they are helping to get the supplies, the weapons and so forth, and, and the training as well, that we will hold them accountable as well when these terrorist groups attack and kill innocent 
people around the world. And I hope that that is part of the message that the president sends, that we understand that while this attack, that, that there is evidence that Iran did not know specifically the timing of it uh, or the exact planning of it, that they are still going to be held accountable for what they have done to create this, this terrorist network and other terrorist networks throughout the Middle East. Senator, the president's expected to make the case for a $100 billion-plus supplemental aid package tonight. Um, I know where you are on, on supporting both Israel and Ukraine, uh, more border funding. My question is, as a senator, when you look across the chamber to House Republicans who still don't have a speaker, what goes through your mind? To begin with, we have to, we'll probably start it in the Senate, would be my expectation. We'll provide them with an opportunity to get through this challenge that they have over there. You know, we in the Senate, sometimes we hear that the House says, you know what, we can argue Republicans and Democrats, but it's the Senate that is the real enemy. And while they say that haphazardly, it's, it's and, and, and almost comically, the reality is there is a difference between the House and the Senate. And, and the House was designed by our founding fathers to be emotional, to express the anger, the concerns of a country at the very moment. You see that going on right now as those folks over there are angry with what's going on in the world. They're angry with what's going on with the economy here in the United States. Right. It is reflective of the frustration that they feel. Founding fathers recognize that, but they expected the Senate to work through the issues, to find common ground, and to, to be that steady force. And hopefully we will be. We'll provide the resources necessary for Israel. We'll provide the resources necessary for Ukraine. Hopefully we can come to agreement on how we're going to defend that southern border finally. And in the meantime, Taiwan is still there and whatever we can do to slow down Xi Jinping's interest in, in uh, taking back uh, or taking right. over Taiwan is something that, that might very well be included as well. All right. Uh, we could start with the Speaker of the House, <laughs> but appreciate it. Senator Mike Rounds, South Dakota, always. Thank you. Thank you. So we do want to update you on something just into CNN. Russia has detained a journalist who is a U.S.-Russian dual national. Her name, Alsu Hermasheva, has been charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. She's employed as a journalist and an editor for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. She's based in Prague. Her employer says she was detained in June in the Russian city of Kazan as she was waiting for a return flight to the Czech Republic. This is the second American journalist in Russian custody, Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal, also detained and charged in March of 2023. Well, President Biden says Egypt has agreed to allow 20 trucks of humanitarian aid to travel into Gaza. But is that enough? More on the situation on the ground. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in Israel today. What he hopes to achieve there. Next. We're showing you live pictures of where there was a strike or what appears to be a strike uh, in the southern part of Gaza uh, and Khan Yunus near a hospital. It just underscores what has been a continuous bombardment by Israeli Air Force uh, airstrikes since the October 7th terror attack. It also underscores the difficulty residents, individuals, citizens of Gaza have had. President Biden says Egypt's president, el-Sisi, has agreed to allow much-needed humanitarian aid into Gaza through its southern border. He agreed that what he would do is open the gate on, uh, to do two things. One, let up to 20 trucks through to begin with. Now, the president also pledged to send $100 million in humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian people in Gaza and the occupied West Bank. Joining us now is Dr. Youssef Kelfa. He is 
the co-founder and board member of the Palestinian American Medical Association. The group supports doctors in hospitals in Gaza. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for your time. I want to start with what you're hearing about the situation on the ground right now. Uh, how dire is it? Well, good morning and thank you for having me. Um, first, I would like to take one step back and look at the whole picture in the healthcare in Gaza. Um, so I, I can say as a co-founder and former president of PAMA, a Palestinian American Medical Association, which is a nonprofit organization that for the past 10 years have been supporting the healthcare in uh, Gaza, West Bank. Uh, we are talking about medical missions that I went personally in, and uh, I can say that in the last couple of years, I've been to Gaza five times. Um, I, want, I would like to say that I have witnessed firsthand the devastating um, effect that uh, that 16 plus year uh, of siege imposed by Israel on Gaza. Um, we are talking about a huge shortage of medicine for cancer patient, dialysis patient. Uh, we are talking about um, the strain, overall strain on the healthcare there. We are talking about the challenges the patients in Gaza face to seek um, surgery outside. This is just a, a part of an endless list. And then we come to this war now, 13 days ago. So you have already collapsed healthcare system, and now you add this to, to that. So the healthcare system is on the brink of you know, even a greater catastrophe. So what we are talking about, we are talking about as of now 4,000 plus Palestinian were killed by the airstrike and bomb on Gaza. We are talking about 13,000 plus uh, injuries. We are talking about most and the vast majority of those are vulnerable children and women. Um, we are talking about 2.2 million population, 2.2 uh, million people who live in a densely populated area. We are talking about 140 square mile area. This is how big the whole gas stream. And you are talking about lack of access to water, electricity, fuel. Uh, this is a, a breathing ground for infection. This is gonna be a, a healthcare crisis. Then you are talking about more than half million Palestinians in the past 13 days were displaced internally in Gaza and they are looking for a shelter um, in the schools, in the hospital. And then you bring add to that as a physician, as a doctor, as a humanitarian, I am mourning the loss of more than 40 healthcare professionals. They were killed by the Israel strike in the in the past 13 days. Um, a good number of them I worked with during my medical mission. You are talking about doctors, nurses, paramedics. You are talking about ambulances that should be a, a, a symbol of hope and help. 22 were damaged by the airstrike. There's more than 24 documented incidents of airstrike on healthcare facilities. So this is this is this is have to stop. And I can I would like to share with you that Al Ahli Hospital that was you know bombed two days ago is the home of Pama Youth psychosocial rehabilitation to the children in Gaza. We mourn the loss of some of those children. We mourn the loss of some of those staff. This should not happen in 2023. And, you know, my, my message is crystal clear. This war and bombing uh, on Gaza is causing an immense um, effect on the vulnerable children, women, civilians, and healthcare professionals in Gaza. It got to stop. 
this imposed blockade should be lifted right now and safe corridors for the medical and humanitarian aid should enter now. There should be no delay, there should be no limit about how much that aid. And, and finally, I want to say that the healthcare facility and professional should not be a target of the Israeli airstrike. Our colleagues back home, they should work in safe environment like anywhere. You know, the children of Gaza is like any child anywhere on the world. They deserve to live in peace. They deserve to have an access to basic health care. And I'm calling upon the international community and all the people of good faith to intervene and stop that and join our effort. And, you know, as a PAMA, they can join us at PAMAUSA.org. We need help to stop that, get medical aid in, and make and Dr. the Yusuf, healthcare professional work. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Yusuf Khalif, that yes. is something President Biden said he had secured agreement from the Egyptian president to get some of this aid in. But you're right, we have to wait and see when it will actually happen. Time is of the essence. Thank you for the work you do and for sharing all of that with us this morning. Well, for more information about how you can help humanitarian efforts in Israel and Gaza, go to CNN.com impact or text relief to 707070 to donate. President Biden is back from his trip to Israel. He, he will be delivering remarks to the American people in prime time in an address tonight. Principal Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer, he's going to join us from the White House. That's next. Welcome back. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv, Israel. And uh, right now you can hear sirens here uh, indicating uh, these are the warnings for incoming rockets coming from Gaza. Uh, you just heard those sirens here as I began speaking. President Biden is back in the United States after making his historic trip to Israel. And there you go. Um, when those sirens happen, as we told you, it's very soon that you then hear those explosions. That looks like it was actually some of them uh, just to the south of us here over the Tel Aviv skyline and some of them uh, at least at least the kind of ricochet that we're hearing from the Iron Dome interceptions uh, are, are just over the Mediterranean Sea here. Uh, some context. I was speaking to someone this morning uh, from Thailand who lives here and works here, lives in a neighborhood outside Tel Aviv. One of the rockets that came in yesterday that broke through the dome or pieces of it hit the apartment building next door who two, who two children and, and some more coming in here uh, were, were shaken as that happened. And of course, that's happening here. But I want to emphasize what's happening in Gaza is happening without an Iron Dome. And I think it's really important to give that context when we talk about what we're experiencing. It is excruciatingly different there, just miles away. While in Israel, uh, in his visit here, Biden says he has reached a significant breakthrough on providing humanitarian aid to Gaza. The president saying that after a, quote, very blunt negotiation, the Egyptian president, al-Sisi, has agreed to allow 20 trucks of humanitarian aid that have been waiting along that border to travel through the Rafah border crossing. If you have an opportunity to alleviate the pain, you should do it, period. And if you don't, you're going to lose credibility worldwide. And, uh, and I think everyone understands that. All right. Well, here in Israel right now, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is making a visit of his own today. So he is here as I speak. He is here to show solidarity with Israel. Also, though, to push for a humanitarian corridor into Gaza. The relationship between our two countries has always been strong, but I want you to know at this particular moment, you don't just have our friendship, you have our solidarity. 
Meanwhile, pro-Palestinian protests continue to grow across the Middle East and around the world, some of them, of course, outside American embassies. Uh, the consulate in Adana, Turkey, was closed down, uh, the U.S. consulate, after 80,000 people uh, were protesting there. The demonstrations have ramped up since that hospital explosion in Gaza, even though Israel has denied responsibility for the blast and put out data to support that, as the United States has as well. Poppy, back to you. Aaron, thank you very much. Uh, we'll get back to you very soon. Joining us now uh, from the White House, President Biden's deputy National Security Advisor John Finer. John, I think just hearing uh, those sirens go off and then the blast, you know, very close to where Aaron is, shows how this is continuing at a rapid clip. So the president is addressing the nation tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern time. What can we expect from him? And will he give any updates that we have not yet had on, for example, the Americans that are believed to be held hostage? Uh, well, I think you can expect a few things uh, from the president tonight. One, uh, to, to lay out uh, his view of this extraordinary uh, moment that we are in when it comes to our national security uh, and international stability with a, with a highlight uh, and a focus, uh, obviously, on the conflict in, in Israel and his visit uh, there yesterday, uh, as well as the ongoing conflict uh, in Ukraine uh, after Russia's brutal invasion there. Second, uh, he will connect uh, those events and this broader moment uh, to the lives of Americans uh, back here and explain uh, why this should matter to us, why this must uh, matter to us uh, as Americans. And then third, uh, the importance of American leadership in responding uh, to this moment and the importance of resources uh, to enabling that leadership, which the president has shown in recent days uh, and throughout his uh, tenure. Speaking of resources, the president pledged $100 million in an aid package to Palestinians, civilians, innocent civilians in Gaza and the West Bank. How is the United States going to ensure that none of that ends up in the hands of Hamas? Uh, well, as you know, this was a primary focus of the president's diplomacy uh, yesterday, both uh, in Israel, uh, where he met uh, with the entire Israeli security establishment, but also uh, in his with regional leaders, uh, including President al-Sisi of Egypt. Uh, getting assistance into Gaza is a complicated undertaking. It involves uh, essentially securing an understanding among uh, Hamas fighters uh, who control the checkpoint on the other side of the border, among uh, the government of Israel and among the government of Egypt. Uh, and the agreement the president uh, secured will enable these trucks to flow as soon as the roadway can be repaired. John. But the president was also quite clear that if this assistance goes in, it cannot be uh, misappropriated, it cannot be taken uh, by Hamas fighters for their own purposes. And so we're going to be watching that very closely. It has to get to Palestinian civilians who need it. It has to. But the question is, from what you just said, is the U.S. then essentially in a position where it has to take the word of Hamas that it will not be taken? I mean, what other guarantee the can there be? We believe there is an understanding now among all of the uh, players who control that crossing, the Rafah crossing in, in Egypt. President al-Sisi has uh, given his uh, commitment to the president. The Israelis have said that they will permit assistance to go through. So we believe in the next day or so that assistance will start to move. So what I thought was interesting also from the president's readout of his call with President al-Sisi is uh, the use of the word in a sustainable manner. That's a quote, that the aid will flow in a sustainable manner. So not just these 20 trucks that are waiting right there. What does that specifically mean? How much and for how long? Uh, it means that Gaza uh, is extraordinary, is experiencing an extraordinary hardship and the people there. Uh, and by the way, I, I would point to the comments of your last guest who rightly pointed out that there are families uh, and children and ordinary residents of Gaza who uh, should enjoy the same basic rights as people everywhere, in, including here. And they need uh, this assistance in order to just uh, endure uh, the conflict that is underway. That is going to require a lot more assistance uh, than just uh, a few dozen trucks, and it's going to require it uh, throughout the duration of this conflict. And that's what we will be and pushing for 
and trying to ensure uh, okay. uh, is that what actually happens. Well, that's key that you said for the duration of the conflict. Um, let me ask you about the, the canceled part of the trip, uh, which was going to be this summit of Middle Eastern leaders in Jordan. This is what the Jordanian foreign minister said yesterday, and he's talking about the hospital strike that the National Security Council has now come out and said Israel is not responsible for. But here's what he thinks. Everybody here uh, believes that Israel is responsible for it. Uh, the Israeli army is saying it's not. But, but to be honest, try and find anybody who's going to believe it in this part of the world. Uh, people are used to uh, this kind of uh, uh, denying things and then admitting them. And we saw the, the protests and continue to see them, just thousands of people in cities across the Arab world, John, yesterday. How does this complicate matters for the United States in trying to find a solution to this in peace? Well, look, I, I think this is a, a cautionary note uh, for governments in the region, uh, frankly, uh, for press uh, in responding to uh, each and every twist and turn in, in this conflict. And there will mm -hmm. be more of these to come. Uh, it is important that people do not react immediately or overreact immediately to first reports in, in a time of, of war. We tried not to do that. We tried to take in information, assess what was happening, and then make a considered judgment about uh, culpability and responsibility. We will be sharing that information uh, with our friends and partners in the region. We have shared uh, as much of that information as we can uh, publicly. But I think there, there is a, a lesson here, I think, for all of us, that jumping to conclusions uh, right away when there is fog of war, when people are yeah. not uh, present at a lot of these sites, uh, can lead to uh, mistaken analysis yeah. in the first instance that is then very it, difficult uh, to, to reverse. It, it's an important point, and the White House did take time before coming out and going as far as the NSC went last night, just to, to build on what the National Security Council said in terms of they, the belief is the intelligence is, quote, Israel is not responsible for that explosion. Will the administration be able to determine definitively who launched the rocket specifically? We're going to continue to look at exactly that question. I will say there are a number of terrorist organizations that operate uh, in Gaza. Hamas, obviously the most prominent one, uh, but there are others, including Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, as well. And so we will continue to try to attribute this uh, 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 rocket that we believe landed at the hospital to one of these groups, but it might take time. Again, this is a challenging situation without a lot of presence on the ground to mm -hmm. go in and gather evidence. And as we gather uh, more information, we will share it. Yeah, fair enough. John Finer at the White House, thank you uh, as we wait for the president's remarks tonight. Thank you. Well, there's still deep uncertainty in the House as the speakership appears to slip even further away from Jim Jordan's grasp. There could be another vote today. We are live on The Hill. That's next. Well, third vote for the Speaker of the House is possible later today. Jim Jordan failed to win the speakership yesterday, faring even worse than he did in the second round in the first round of voting. Yet he is staying in the race, at least for now, even though there are deep divisions within his conference. And as Republicans try to find their way out of this standoff, some are pushing to expand the powers of the interim speaker, Patrick McHenry. Joining us now is CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Uh, Lauren, it seems like Jim Jordan is losing votes by the hour at this point. Is this vote actually going to happen? Yeah, that is the major question this morning, Phil. And the answer is that we don't know whether or not Jim Jordan is going to try to take this to the floor for a third time. Patrick McHenry has made clear that that is up to Jim Jordan to decide. But the risk that is posed if he goes back to the floor today is he could lose even more votes than he lost yesterday. He had 20 defections the first ballot, 22 defections the second ballot. And the expectation is that he would have even more today. Uh, 
if he went to the floor. So the question looms, does he decide to go forward or does he try and continue whipping votes? So far, it doesn't seem like that effort has really gotten him anywhere. In fact, you have a number of holdouts who say that they are not going to vote for Jordan no matter what. So it's really hard to imagine, Phil, how he closes this deal. That means that Republicans really have two options at this point. Do they try to run another candidate? Likely uh, anyone who would run at this point is not going to have an easy time getting 217 votes. It's really not even clear if anyone in the Republican conference could get 217 votes at this point. The other option, as you mentioned, would be empowering Patrick McHenry. McHenry has said repeatedly he is focused on getting Jim Jordan elected. But at what point does the Republican conference say enough is enough? We have to govern. We have a deadline coming up on November 17th to fund the government. We have to do something for Israel. We have to do something for Ukraine. Those are the Republican voices right now that are really driving the train on the effort to try and empower McHenry in short order. But again, McHenry has a very delicate balance here because he has to let Jim Jordan decide for himself when it's time to call it quits. Phil? All right, Lauren Fox for us at the Capitol. Thank you. In the next hour, we're going to talk to Republican Congressman Mike Lawler. He's one of the Republicans who voted against Jim Jordan both times. Here in New York, an iconic Jewish deli vandalized swastika in the building. And in France, police say there have been more than 320 anti-Semitic attacks since the Hamas attacks on October 7th. That is close to how many that country saw in all of last year. As the war here in Israel continues in its second week and as pro-Palestinian protests are now happening around the world, a swastika graffiti was found scrawled on the wall of a building housing one of New York City's iconic Jewish delis. The picture that you're seeing here was posted on Instagram and in the comments of the post was an outpouring of support for the deli which was founded all the way back in 1954. But there has been an increase in anti-Semitic acts uh, in so many countries, the United States, as well as around the world, including in France, where incidents have surged since the Hamas attacks here in Israel. Uh, French officials have recorded hundreds of them, hundreds, and say that online, there's an online reporting platform now that has received over 3,000 instances of anti-Semitic behavior just in the past two weeks alone. So I want to go to Melissa Bell because she's there in Paris. Melissa, what are you seeing? Well, Aaron, you have to bear in mind that France has not only one of the world's largest Jewish populations, but actually also Europe's largest Muslim population. And whenever there is an uptick of tension in the Middle East, it is very keenly felt in communities in France, many of them coexisting in very similar neighborhoods. This time has proven no exception. And what we're seeing Europe-wide is a substantial uptick in those tensions. Under the cover of darkness, hate crimes caught on tape. Red paint daubed across the front of two Jewish schools in the United Kingdom. Hate spreading from the Middle East after the brutal Hamas attacks of October 7th. The day the violence started in the Middle East, we started to have anti-Semitic incidents in France. As elsewhere in Europe, 
On Tuesday, an attempted arson attack on a Berlin synagogue. In France, 327 anti-Semitic acts since the Hamas attacks, compared to 436 for the whole of 2022. And in the United Kingdom, 320 anti-Semitic incidents since the attacks, a fifth of last year's official total in just 10 days. We're trying to address both those real issues and the fear of it, uh, which, as I say, is sort of ever-present in many of our uh, Jewish community. The response from Western European governments has been uncompromising. I promise you, I will stop at nothing to keep you safe. France's interior minister vowing that no one will touch a single hair of a Jew and the German chancellor describing anti-Semitism as contemptuous and abhorrent. In France and Germany, pro-Palestinian protests went ahead despite bans that were aimed at preventing anti-Semitic acts. When I see the demonstrations in American cities or on American campuses, I feel a fear as a Jew, being, uh, uh, feeling something hostile toward me. For France's Jewish community, the largest in the world after the US and Israel, the attacks of the last few years, some by Islamists, have all too often been far too personal. On Friday, a public high school teacher was killed by a former student in an attack linked by the government to the conflict in Israel. Not an act of anti-Semitism, yet a measure of rising tensions that Jews in France and elsewhere in Europe are watching with a wary and fearful eye. Well, today, four French airports had been evacuated after bomb threats as well, Melissa. I mean, after eight airports in France were forced to evacuate yesterday for security reasons. And I know even the, at Versailles, it was evacuated for security reasons for the third time in less than a week. I mean, these are pretty scary things to be happening. And at such scale, what is what is actually going on, Melissa? I think what's been uh, remarkable to watch this time, Erin, is just how quickly uh, the tensions uh, as they rose in the Middle East rose here uh, immediately afterwards. We saw with that attack last week on that school teacher uh, in which he was killed and a couple of other uh, teaching staff were severely injured by a former student. Immediately afterwards, the terror threat level here in France was raised to its highest possible level. And as you say, we've had a series of incidents since, a measure really of that tension. The Louvre uh, closing, Versailles as well, the airports closing day after day. The country is very much on edge. And bear in mind that this is a country that has a very recent and very bloody history of terror attacks. And you can feel on the streets of Paris a substantial police presence yes. there as well, Erin, uh, to reassure people that this is in hand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, rem remembering the horrific uh, Bataclan and what that city was like in those days as we were, were all there. Thank you so much, Melissa Bell. Phil. The U.S. intelligence officials have been briefing lawmakers as to why they are confident Israel is not to blame for Tuesday's deadly blast at a hospital in Gaza. We're also learning new details about just how prepared Hamas was for its attack on Israel. Retired four-star general and former CIA director David Petraeus joins us next. Stay with us.
It's the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett is live in Tel Aviv, Israel. And today, President Biden is getting ready to give a primetime address to the nation after returning home from the war zone in Israel overnight. We are expecting him to make his pitch for wartime aid to both Israel and Ukraine. Biden says he secured a deal with the Egyptian president to allow some trucks with desperately needed humanitarian aid to start crossing into Gaza tomorrow where millions of civilians are running out of food, water, and medicine. If you have an opportunity to alleviate the pain, you should do it, period. And if you don't, you're going to lose credibility worldwide. And uh, I think everyone understands that. Well, President Biden also said U.S. intelligence backs up Israel's claim that a malfunctioning rocket fired by Palestinian militants caused the deadly blast at a hospital in Gaza, not an Israeli airstrike. New video has emerged, captured by Al Jazeera, that appears to show a rocket fired from Gaza make a sudden and sharp turn back where it came from, just moments before the explosion at the hospital. And CNN has geolocated a video where you can hear whatever caused the blast. Take a listen. CNN cannot independently verify what caused the blast. The Palestinian Red Crescent released this video of huge explosions near a different hospital last night where it says thousands of people are sheltering. And this morning, Palestinian officials say the death toll in Gaza has now topped 3,500 people. Let's go straight to Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv. And Aaron, this is just in now. Israel saying that it detained 63 Hamas terrorists overnight. What do we know about this? Well, Phil, they, they've just come out and said that they did detain, they say in the West Bank, 63 uh, individuals that they say are Hamas terrorists, 80 detentions overall overnight in the West Bank. They say 63 of them were Hamas. And they're also talking about uh, skirmishes, they say, where there were uh, injuries. A Palestinian was shot. IDF was injured uh, in, in skirmishes as well in Berdus, in the town of Berdus in the West Bank. So uh, the violence continues there, but also very significant. When you talk about 63, again, alleged, we don't yet know who these individuals are or what role they played, uh, if any. But the significance would be uh, that, that they're there, that they got there, what role they had to play, whether they have moved there from Gaza or whether they were there to begin with. So uh, that is unclear, of course, at this time. And also the context of the fact that at least as of a few days ago, so I want to emphasize these numbers surely have changed. But I had been told by IDF sources that at least 10 senior Hamas commanders had been killed in airstrikes so far. So that number has surely gone up with the hundreds of airstrikes a day, including ones that we are hearing about already this morning, working to confirm uh, if there were civilians killed in several strikes in southern Gaza in just these past few moments. And I should say, Phil and Poppy, the rockets that came in here that anybody watching heard, uh, Al-Qassam brigades, Hamas, have claimed responsibility for those, uh, immediately claimed responsibility for those here in Tel Aviv. That horrific strike on a hospital in Gaza that reportedly killed hundreds of innocent civilians, we still don't know the death toll there, has those sparked angry anti-Israel protests around the world. This is now worldwide, and demonstrators gathered outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. to stand for solidarity. That was, of course, yesterday. Nearby at the Capitol, police actually had to arrest about 300 people at another protest demanding a ceasefire in Gaza, in New York. Thousands of demonstrators call, uh, spilled into the streets on Wednesday in one of the largest pro-Palestinian protests that that city has seen so far. 
Meantime, in the Middle East, there have been large crowds in many cities around the Israeli embassy in Amman, Jordan, where protesters were expressing their solidarity with the Palestinians, denouncing the violence, urging the international community to provide aid to intervene in Gaza. 80,000 people were demonstrating outside a consulate in Turkey, a U.S. consulate. That consulate is now closed. 80,000 people. Take a moment to absorb that. And I want to go straight to our Netta Bashir because she is live in Amman, Jordan, where there have been so many protests. And Netta, what are you seeing on the ground in Jordan? Well, look, Aaron, I think it's important to note here that these protests are not new. We have seen demonstrations, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people taking to the streets here in Jordan and across the Middle East from the outset of this war. But they are certainly ramping up. And that is what we have seen on the ground. We were at a protest yesterday uh, in downtown Amman near the uh, Israeli embassy where hundreds of people had gathered, as you mentioned, expressing their solidarity with the Palestinian people, but also calling for an end to Israel's aerial bombardment of the besieged Gaza. A strip. And this is a cause, an issue that is deeply personal for so many in the Middle East, but particularly here in Jordan, where some 50% of the population are either Palestinian or of Palestinian descent. But across the board, the people we spoke to on the ground at the protest, people that we've been speaking to around Amman in general, have said that this is something that feels very personal to them. We spoke to one protester yesterday who said he felt it was his duty to come out on the ground and to voice his support and solidarity for the Palestinian people. Take a listen. The least thing we could all do is just to stand here and be the voice of the people. It's pretty emotional. I mean, the whole thing has been running for like nearly like, a lot of years, nearly a hundred years has been going on. And uh, I think it's about time that, you know, people know the truth and what's exactly going on. Now, of course, we have seen protests here in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Tunisia, in Libya, Iraq, in the occupied West Bank, across the board, people taking to the streets in a show of solidarity with the Palestinian people. And, of course, we are expecting these protests to continue ramping up, to continue to intensify. And the central message that we were hearing from people on the ground yesterday is that they are outraged, they are frustrated by the situation inside the Gaza Strip, by the mounting civilian death toll, which is well over 3,000 now inside Gaza, according to Palestinian authorities there. And they are frustrated by the international response as well as the delay in getting aid to those most in need and so many, of course, in need inside Gaza. Now, of course, this isn't just on the popular front. This has also translated to impacts on the diplomatic front, as we saw that planned summit between President Biden, King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi of Egypt, and of course, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, was cancelled uh, following that explosion, that attack on the Al Ahli hospital uh, inside Gaza. But we do know that today, King Abdullah will be meeting with President Sisi in Cairo. The key focus there, of course, trying to bring about an end to this war. Erin? Netta, thank you very much. Live in Amman, and we do just have some new video in of uh, yet another uh, strike in Gaza. Gaza officials, uh, the Interior Ministry, is saying that there was a deadly airstrike hitting a neighborhood in Khan Yunis, Gaza. I will warn you that this video is difficult to watch. This is the video we just got in. People are streaming now into a hospital in Khan Yunis after what the uh, general director of hospitals in Gaza says, 13 were killed in the blast. The Interior Ministry of Gaza is uh, naming the specific family that they say's home was hit by this. We do not yet have any comment from the IDF, and we cannot confirm what caused the blast, who was behind it, a death toll. However, it happened. And I want to go to Salma Abdelaziz, who joins us now with more. And Salma, 
ingoing, outgoing, nonstop, and now more death. Yes, and so far we have that death toll from a hospital director, a local hospital director in Gaza who says 13 people killed. But that's expected to rise, Aaron, because rescue workers are still pulling people out from under the rubble. We do have some graphic footage to show you that I do want to play you of this. This hospital director says that an entire city level was, uh, an entire city block rather, was leveled in Khan Yunus. You mentioned the incoming, the outgoing. The reality is on the ground is that there are two million people who are trapped in an urban war zone. Rights groups say there are no safe places. And what is significant about what you are looking at right now, the place you are looking at right now, is that Khan Yunis is one of the areas that families were told to flee towards by the Israeli military just a few days ago. If you remember, there was evacuation orders over the weekend telling people to flee south. Well, this is south. This is supposed to be some semblance of safety. Clearly, it is not. It is also the south of the Gaza Strip, which means closer to the Rafah border crossing. You'll remember, of course, President Biden announcing this deal to allow some trucks, some aid into Gaza. This could potentially complicate that. If there are heavy airstrikes, as officials uh, are saying inside Gaza, intensifying airstrikes on the south of the Strip that complicates the ability to bring that desperately needed aid in. And you know that uh, many hospitals are saying that they are simply on the brink of collapse, that they are just hours away from losing fuel, losing medical supplies. So you have these two million people who are already trapped in a very densely populated enclave. Now they've pu been pushed into this even smaller corner in the south, hoping for safety, seeking safety, but of course, continuing to face that bloodshed. These hospitals, they are going to, they are absolutely overwhelmed. What treatment they can get is unclear, but doctors were telling us that they were performing surgeries on the floors of hospitals in Gaza. All right, Sama, thank you very much. Your doctor there telling us, um, barely, barely could speak for 20 seconds on a, on a recorded clip to tell us there's no medicine, no, no medical supplies, nothing. Uh, there's smoke right now rising over Gaza as these strikes continue. Phil and Poppy, this particular strike that we understand in the Alamal neighborhood, uh, spokesperson for the IDF, just speaking to Jim Shudo, uh, saying they have no comment and they have no information about this block. So more will be forthcoming. But as Salma says, uh, people are dead. Some civilians are dead. We don't know the death toll. And they're of course, is more tragedy and more things needing to be answered. Back to you. Aaron, thank you very much. We'll get back to you very soon. And with us now is retired four-star general and former CIA director David Petraeus. He is now the chairman of the KKR Global Institute and the co-author of a brand-new book, Conflict. It traces the evolution of warfare from 1945 to now. General Petraeus, thank you. Good to be with you. Let's start where Aaron left off and the importance of accuracy in all of this. You quote Winston Churchill in the book, famously saying, I think it was 1943, quote, in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. How do you think about this now in this war? Well, we've seen a number of cautionary tales here about uh, the first report is always wrong, uh, which is a truism in the military often. And let's pause and always try to get additional information. Let's try to develop it and so forth. So this, the reaction to the hospital bombing, which we now, I think, have quite high confidence was not caused by an Israeli bomb, but by an errant Islamic Jihad rocket. Uh, again, upheaval in the region uh, over something that they should be blaming Islamic Jihad for, the terrorists, not the Israelis. But again, this is also a reminder that 
operations in urban areas are just extraordinarily difficult. Art. There's just inevitably there will be considerable damage to civilian infrastructure and there will be uh, loss of life for innocent civilians, especially against an enemy like Hamas and Islamic yeah. Jihad who fight from the population. I mean, is that why you warned in something you wrote recently, because obviously this book was completed before this war broke out, that a ground invasion by the IDF into Gaza, quote, could be Mogadishu on steroids? Yeah. And again, I recognize this may be necessary. Um, and again, the, the desire for revenge, for vengeance, is absolutely understandable. Keep in mind that in per capita terms, the loss of 1,300 Israelis in a barbaric attack, unspeakable actions, is the equivalent of well over 40,000 for us compared with the 3,000, not quite 3,000 we lost in 9-11. So this, is, this has touched everyone. They're all called up. Uh, but again, I think the recognition is increasing about how challenging this would be. I think this is a military mission that can be accomplished, but it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be in, in the least bit clean or antiseptic. This is going to be hugely damaging. And the real question that has to be asked is then what? You know, during the fight to Baghdad, I was just a two-star division commander. I remember a moment where we took the first large Iraqi city. Several days of fighting, enemy collapses. I call up my boss and I said, hey, I've got good news and bad news. Uh, good news is we own Najaf, a city of about 400,000 people, holiest city in Shia Islam. Yes, what's the bad news? I said, we own Najaf. What do you want us to do with it? And I can see on a much grander scale if you destroy Hamas, and again, we all want to see Hamas. Hamas is the Islamic State. This is not a, you know, a ideological movement or something like that. These are barbarians. And if you dismantle the political wing as well, which is what uh, Israeli senior officials have said they intend to do, then what? Who's going to own Gaza? Uh, and again, you'll have two million people who will be in even worse humanitarian crisis than they already are. And trying to figure that out, and I, I'm sure, I know the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force Chief of Staff and the others, I'm sure that they're saying, boss, we can do this, uh, but it's going to be hugely costly. And we sure like to know what will be done afterwards. How are you going to uh, administer this and make sure that Hamas doesn't come back? Because you not only need an organization in there to hand out humanitarian assistance and rebuild and restore basic services, you need an organization that's going to conduct a counterinsurgency campaign because... Mm -hmm. Hamas uh, counterterrorism campaign would be even more accurate. Hamas and Islamic Jihad will try to come back, and there will be remnants regardless. In talking to U.S. officials, I think there is a more palpable concern about this escalating to a regional conflict than yes. I've heard in a very, yep. very long time, yep. if ever. Yes. Um, how, how real is that, that this could escalate and escalate very quickly and very broadly? I think it's very real. You saw, again, in response to the inaccurate information about the hospital bombing, real upheaval uh, in the West Bank. Uh, in uh, Lebanon, uh, where, you know, keep in mind that Hezbollah on the northern border of Israel has 150,000 rockets. And if they decide to unleash those, that could overwhelm the very sophisticated uh, Iron Dome and other integrated air defense systems that they have. Um, and now realize that in 2006, when there was a war with uh, Hezbollah, they got hammered by Israel. And we reassessed several times after that the increasing amount of damage. So I'm not sure they want to get into this, but it's not impossible. And you but have the, to be very concerned about it. The region is different than it was in 2006. There has been a realignment of sorts in several of the players. There are new leaders in several of the players right now. Does that uh, add to the risk right now? It does. Uh, certainly it does. And of course, you have Iran, which is frankly probably delighted to see all the trouble that is going on. They've stoked it. They fund Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, the 
Shia militia that they support in Iraq and Syria, uh, Houthis in Yemen. Uh, and any of all of these could do something. You saw actually uh, three drones intercepted that were headed toward U.S. bases in Iraq. We still have several thousand soldiers there and in northeastern Syria at the request of the Iraqi government, in the case of Iraq, to help them keep an eye on the Islamic State, which is necessary, by the way, because even after you destroy the Islamic State, which is what happened finally in Mosul, by the way, and Mosul is a city about the size of Gaza City, uh, it took nine months for the Iraqi security forces to clear all of Mosul with our direct assistance. So it, again, it puts it in perspective, in, it, as well as identifying the potential for regional escalation. It's why we have two entire carrier task forces either out there or the second just on the way, additional air power, heightened force protection, and all the rest of this. You know, one of the through lines in your book that I think is so critical then and now especially is this, you've got to, good leaders have to get the big ideas right. Yes, yeah. You say it starts with getting the big ideas right. Failing to do that typically dooms what follows. If you were sitting down with Netanyahu right now, how would you talk to him about those big ideas? Well, he's laid out what I think one big idea is, but it's, it's only one and there needs to be several more. One is destruction of Hamas. Again, entirely understandable, need to do that, but the military has to acquaint him. This is how hard this is going to be, how many casualties we're gonna take, they're gonna take civilians, damage, destruction. If you think there's a humanitarian crisis now, wait until this begins. But then it's what's the other big idea here, which is just begging for an answer. And that is what next? Who's going to take over Gaza? You know, the old, if you break it, you own it. And again, we broke Iraq and owned it. And it turned out that our phase four planning, the post-conflict planning was inadequate. I remember asking actually in Kuwait again, just a two star, I said, can you give me a little more, give us a little more detail on what happens when we get to Baghdad? You did. Top of the re regime. And they said, you just get us to Baghdad, Dave, we'll take it from there. And obviously that planning proved to be wholly inadequate and then we compounded it by some decisions that we made. And this is the question Phil has been asking from day one, day two of this. Well, and part of the reason for asking the question is your quote from 2003 to Rick Atkinson is ringing in my head all 13, Tell me how 14 this days. Ends. Tell yeah. me how this ends. Yeah. And no one has yep. a great answer yet. The book is conflict. It is excellent, particularly in this moment. Uh, General David Petraeus, we appreciate it. Thank you, Thanks. sir. Good to be with you, Thank Phil. You. Bobby. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is asking U.S. embassies around the world to reevaluate its security as the war between Israel and Hamas rages on, and law enforcement here in the U.S. also remains on high alert. A look at those warnings and potential threats. That's next. Well, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken ordering all U.S. embassies and consulates to conduct emergency reviews of their security to determine if it needs to be stepped up. Here in the United States, law enforcement remains on very high alert. The FBI and the Department of Homeland Security issuing a joint intelligence bulletin warning that, quote, lone offenders inspired by or reacting to the ongoing Israel-Hamas war pose the most likely threat to Americans. Joining us now, CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst, John Miller. So what do people do with that information? Well, I think what people do with the information is we get back into um, kind of the post 9-11 mode of the heightened version of if you see something, say something. Uh, what law enforcement is looking for is help from the public in terms of suspicious activity. Um, the, the LAPD put out a note uh, to their community saying, 
you know your community and you know your neighbors and the best way to protect them is, you know, to to share information um, and come forward if you see something that doesn't fit in. Um, so there's a lot of that. But what we're seeing in terms of police departments is the NYPD put 3,500 people who would normally work, this is thousands, um, in plain clothes, in uniform, uh, no requests for days off um, that weren't scheduled are being approved. In L.A., they did the same thing. In Chicago, they've enhanced things. In Las Vegas, they've tightened their communications with tourist locations in the casino industry and their camera systems. Um, the major city chiefs association, which is all the, the most populous urban areas in the country, had a conference last week and sent out a notice today mm. with a 10-point uh, set of recommendations for enhancing intelligence, counterterrorism plans, contingencies, um, strategies for demonstrations. So what you're seeing um, is a girding of the American security apparatus on the federal, state, and local level. Can I ask on the international level? You know, we were watching, uh, I think in real time yesterday, we were all watching what was happening in Beirut as some of the protests in the wake of the, the hospital bombing <coughs> um, or the hospital explosion. The, the cable from Blinken, obviously a lot has changed in terms of embassy security in the wake of Benghazi and, and things like that. What are they doing right now? Well, they've told everybody, get your emergency action committee together within the embassy. Assess what do we have as our day-to-day -day security? Where are we in the world and what are the level of tensions where we are? What do we need to ratchet up in terms of do we need more people out front? Do we need more help from the host country at the perimeter? Um, but there's a flip side to that, which is what do we need as the regional security officer from the diplomatic security service to be putting out from the embassy to our Americans in that country, in that region to say, here's where to go. Here's where to avoid. These are potential flashpoints. So it's a top to bottom threat assessment. And he didn't just say do it. He said do it and send it back to Maine State because we want to review it and make sure we're doing enough. What is the significance of its belief to be a Hamas spokesperson taken among the 63 that were detained uh, in the West Bank overnight? A couple of things, Poppy. And uh, it's an interesting distinction because, you know, you have the military wing and you have the propaganda and political people. But this isn't a regular law enforcement posture in Israel. This is war. And that is, in terms of war, uh, the people doling out the propaganda or setting the message are operational. And in addition, they can be given operational responsibilities beyond their day job of spokesmen. But I think if you look at this in the when it happened and the who it happened to, you see Israel trying to control a message, um, which is... The Israelis bombed this hospital and killed 500, 500 innocent people, including women and children. When we have sorted through, there is at least significant doubt, if not evidence to the contrary, and that those facts aren't fully established yet. So somebody who would be stirring that kind of emotion um, in a genre where people would commit acts of terrorism just based on that um, is considered somebody you would probably want to roll up in that in the West Bank, as opposed to Gaza. He's got communications, infrastructure, and an advantage there. John Miller, thank you, as always, for your expertise. Appreciate Thanks. It. So the World Health Organization says the situation in Gaza is, in their words, quote, spiraling out of control from millions of civilians trapped there. Our Sanjay Gupta has reported across the Middle East and Afghanistan, even performed brain surgery in a war zone. He's with us next to help us understand what the doctors there are going through.
New video just into CNN after Gaza officials say a deadly airstrike hit a neighborhood in Khan Yunis, that is in southern Gaza. This video is hard to watch. This is a video of death and destruction and people maimed and lives forever changed. People streaming now into a hospital in Khan Yunis. The Interior Ministry in Gaza says 13 were killed in a blast. They are blaming an Israeli strike. We uh, don't know the number of dead or injured. Uh, we just know what they're saying right now. The IDF spokesperson, Jerome Spielman, responded to questions about this to CNN just moments ago. These are not people that we can trust with information. I'm not saying that nothing happened there. I have no information about it. However, we've learned from the hospital incident. We cannot trust what they say because they simply have no problem deceiving the world. CNN at this moment cannot confirm for you what caused the blast at this point or who is behind it. We simply, we don't know. We know that it happened. We know that people are killed. And, uh, and that's a huge tragedy. We don't yet know who's responsible or if it was the IDF what they were trying to do with that strike. San Sama Abdelaziz joins us live now with more. So, Sama, what do we know, and do you anticipate getting more answers from uh, the IDF or Hamas about this? Well, let's just focus on what's happening on the ground, Aaron, because regardless of the accusations being traded back and forth, the reality on the ground is that there are some two million people, half of them children, that are trapped in an urban war zone as these two warring parties uh, literally exchange explosions, exchange fire. Uh, the images we're playing right now, as you mentioned, are disturbing, but they are of people streaming into an overwhelmed healthcare system. Hospitals are absolutely on the brink in Gaza. Some of them warning that they're soon going to run out of fuel, that they're already running out of medical supplies. Doctors were telling us that they were performing surgeries without painkillers on the floors of some of these hospitals. That's the medical treatment that these victims will receive when they enter uh, uh, this Khan Yunus hospital. And the location here is extremely significant. Khan Yunus is in the south of the Gaza Strip. These were areas Areas that family civilians were told to flee towards this weekend by the Israeli military for their safety. So families went there. I think about half a million people went there hoping to find that refuge, to absolutely not see that at all. They continue to face death, continue to face destruction in those areas. The other significant thing to take away here when we're talking about southern Gaza is that's where the Rafah border crossing is. You'll remember President Biden just announced this deal that will allow some trucks into Gaza through the Rafah border crossing, crossing rather. That could complicate those efforts if there is continued fighting. We already have from rights groups that there's been destruction to the Rafah border crossing, to the roads leading to it, caused by Israeli airstrikes. That humanitarian aid is absolutely crucial. Rights groups say every single hour counts. And again, when you're looking at those people trapped, sealed into the Gaza Strip, essentially, by this complete siege, by the closure of the Rafah border crossing, rights groups accusing this uh, offensive by Israel of being collective punishment on this enclave. Sama, thank you very much. And Phil and Papa, you know, as Sama points out, there are just, when you think about two million people, right, 20 trucks now are apparently, if if it opens up the Rafa border for those 20 trucks to come in, as Biden has said, CC has agreed mm -hmm. to. If that occurs, it's 20 trucks. Right. There's nobody coming out. No American citizens, nobody coming out. Right. You just have to. It's so important, I know, for all of us to just remember just the, the agony and anguish and fear that those people have. And there is right now no hope even for any any getting out. Yeah. And the fact that you pointed out that's in the south. 
right, where so many people were, were told to flee. Aaron, we'll get back yeah. right, right to you as soon as we can. With us now, our chief medical correspondent and host of the Chasing Life podcast, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. No better doctor to have at the table in a moment like this. You've, you've covered war zones so much. You've done brain surgery in war zones from Lebanon to Israel to Afghanistan. I mean, we're hearing stories of doctors performing surgery yeah. with no <clears throat> anesthesia. These hospitals already, even before this happened, there's no system for redundancy. They're always full. Obviously, there's fewer supplies now, but it's always a really tough situation in many of these hospitals in the Middle East. Add to that the fact now that they are targeted. You know, when I first started doing this, you know, some 25 years ago now, you had a Red Cross on your truck, that was safe haven. There were international humanitarian sorts of codes of ethics. I remember in 2006, I was covering the Lebanese-Israeli war and someone took a shot at the truck that we were in, which had a Red Cross on it. And that was the first time I sort of realized that there are no rules in situations like this, and hospitals that are in the war zone become targets. In fact, Sarah Seidner did a great report about hospitals underground in Tel Aviv. That started happening in Lebanon uh, about 25 years ago, because hospitals, some of the most precious commodities on what quickly become battlefields, they have to, they have to go underground uh, to try and preserve um, the resources. I'll tell you something else, you know, uh, cover natural disasters, cover conflicts. They're both terrible. The thing about conflicts, though, is that the targeting of that, that really messes with the mental health of the, the clinicians and the people who are trying to do this work. So they are going to save lives, oftentimes strangers' lives, and they are saying to their spouses when they leave, today I may die in order to save the life of someone I don't know. It's really, uh, from a burnout standpoint and sort of mental health standpoint, it is really significant. You mentioned the mental health. You know, you have, uh, I think this episode or this week, your podcast, Chasing Life, you talked to a mental health expert about the anxiety, fear, stress that comes from the news, right? Obviously, a different degree from what you're describing uh, in Gaza for healthcare officials, but everyone is seeing this. Everyone is dealing with this. What did you learn? Even from afar, if you're witnessing this, as we all have been, you guys have been witnessing it constantly, as have I. That can have an impact on your brain. Obviously, it's worse for people who are on the ground that are seeing it firsthand, but even witnessing the, the images on television. What is interesting is here, I brought this brain model to give you an idea, but you have two areas of the brain that are relevant here. One is the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, and that's going to activate no matter what, just by seeing some of these images. And what happens as a result of the amygdala is that you're sort of bypassing the frontal lobes, the judgment. You're basically just a reactionary, emotional sort of person at that point. And as Gail Saltz, who is a psychiatrist, said, you are not in your wise mind at that point. You're not making rational decisions. It's all emotional. That's no surprise. I think the surprising part is it can happen anywhere. She has all sorts of suggestions on what to do about it. Here's some of what she told me. I'm agreeing with the American Psychological Association and other organizations that have come out to say, hey, Take these social media apps off your kid's phone for a while. But I would Mm. also say for the adults, it may be a time to remove for yourself. And I'm not saying, hey, crawl under a rock and have no idea what's going on. I'm not advocating for that. But I am advocating for perhaps not scrolling through on the social media where there's no trigger warning. There's no warning. It's just a constant diet of really upsetting images. You want to be an informed person, but you want to take care of your mental health. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean just going under a rock, as, as Dr. Salt said. One thing she also said, and I'll just share this with you quickly, is the idea of mental health self-care. When you brush your teeth, you take care of your skin, 
How do you take care of your mental health? How do you even know? Paced, deep breathing is something anybody can do. And I don't mean that this may sound like I'm minimizing things, but it makes such an impact. Five seconds in through your nose, and then seven seconds, two extra seconds out through your mouth. Those two extra seconds, that's when your heart rate lowers. That's when your stress lowers. That's when your cortisol levels lower. Do that 10 times. I mean, you guys should do it. I've been doing it. I always do it when I'm in war zones. Anybody who's watching these images can do it. Do it with your kids. There are apps. There are apps. Good breathing apps. But this Not is something you can I know. But. I, I, I did right before I came on the set right now. No, Sanjay does it, so I feel okay saying I also do breathing exercises. Yeah. I do too. Breath work. That was so helpful to hear yeah. what she said yeah. about what we have to do for our kids, but also for ourselves. Absolutely. We, we don't yeah. think about it. Sometimes because you can't measure your own mental health, we don't pay as much attention to it. That's right. Pay attention. Thank you, Sanjay. Well, 22 Republicans voting against Jim Jordan yesterday in his bid to become the next House Speaker. If you're keeping count, that's actually a higher number than the first round. Congressman Mike Lawler is one of those 22 Republicans. He's going to join us next. Stay with us. Well, new this morning, multiple Republican sources telling us that Congressman Jim Jordan is poised to lose even more support if he goes through with a third vote today. In yesterday's vote, 22 of his fellow Republicans voted against him. That's up from 20, who rejected his bid the day before. Joining us now, Republican Congressman from New York, Mike Lawler. He voted against Jordan twice, instead voting for the ousted speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Congressman, I appreciate your time. Is there anything Jim Jordan can do uh, to get you to vote in support of him? Well, as I said to Jim last week, uh, the fundamental issue, frankly, is not who the speaker is. Uh, It is the ability of the conference to work together. Uh, You have 221 members. Uh, And throughout the course of the year, around 20 folks uh, have undermined the conference by voting down rules, by delaying the vote in January for speaker, by uh, voting to vacate the chair, by refusing to support a conservative CR that would have cut spending by 8 percent and helped secure our border. And so, you know, the frustration among many is is the ability to, to govern. Uh, And that, to me, is the focus. And so, as I said to Jim last week, if you want to be able to advance this forward, you have to get those 20 folks together with folks in swing districts uh, and find a way forward in terms of legislation, because that's what the fundamental issue is. Uh, And so your no votes, I think, would seem to say that he hasn't been able to do that. I, I think the bigger question right now is nobody. Tell me who can get 217 votes in your conference. Like, just to be blunt about it, there's no one. Look, right now, there's nobody that's at 217. Uh, The closest person that I think could get there is Kevin McCarthy. Um, And I still fundamentally believe he's the right person to lead our conference. You know, Matt Gaetz is the the dog that caught the car. Uh, There was no plan after uh, the removal of McCarthy. Uh, He just hoped the rest of the conference would solve the problem uh, for him that he created. But... Uh, you have a real challenge here, and especially after the removal of McCarthy, after blocking Steve Scalise, uh, there's a lot of frustration within the conference. So to me, at the end of the day, we need to come together. We need to get back to work. Uh, if we can't get 217 in the immediate, then we need to empower Patrick McHenry to serve temporarily as speaker so that we can move the appropriations bills. We can deal right. with border security. We can deal with aid to Israel and Ukraine. If you don't open up the House floor, then we're in paralysis and gridlock. And that obviously is not good for the American people. Uh, It's not why I was elected uh, to be here. Um, You know, I'm here to govern. 
And right. that's what we have to get back to. I think that there's clearly been momentum moving behind, uh, I think, Congressman Joyce's proposal about uh, kind of empowering the Speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry. Um, there's also been a framing by conservatives that that would be selling out. That would be working with Democrats instead of finding a solution, a solution they can't currently point to. But it has kind of also given life to the threats that some of your colleagues have gotten uh, because of their opposition to Jim Jordan. Have you received any of those threats? Your family received any of those threats? No. And, you know, certainly, look, voters are entitled to reach out, to offer their opinion, to voice their frustrations. Uh, I respect that and, and I accept that. Uh, obviously, uh, people should not be uh, issuing death threats to, to members of Congress or anyone. But uh, the one thing I would say, the idea that this is somehow uh, selling out or, or uh, you know, uh, the uniparty striking, uh, let, let's be clear. The only reason we're in this mess is because eight Republicans teamed up with 208 Democrats uh, to do this, to throw the House into chaos. So we wouldn't be here but for that. Uh, and Patrick McHenry is a Republican. He's been a Republican uh, his whole life. He's served in Congress nearly 20 years. He is well-respected uh, across uh, the, the broad spectrum of the House. Uh, he would be able to do the job effectively and efficiently. Uh, and the bottom line is we need to get back to work. Right. So uh, this is not about selling out or, or uh, you know, striking a deal with the Democrats. It's a Republican speaker who's going to govern as a Republican. We just need to get back to work. Right, a very conservative Republican who also just wants to be the House Financial Services Chairman. Uh, Congressman, do you, want, do you expect a move towards the Joyce proposal, towards empowering Patrick McHenry today? Look, I, 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 if we can't get to 217 today, we need to get the House floor back up and running. I have a bill in House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee today that we're marking up to sanction Iran and Iranian petroleum uh, even further. We need to be moving these bills on the House floor, uh, given the situation in Israel. So uh, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and if we can't come to a, an immediate consensus on a speaker, uh, then we need to empower Patrick to govern. And, and that's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing we can do today. All right, New York Republican Congressman Mike Lawler, appreciate it, thank you. Thank you. So President Biden has reached a significant verbal breakthrough on providing humanitarian aid to Palestinians facing dire conditions. That aid, though, has not yet actually been allowed through the Rafah crossing. When that happens is crucial. So currently we're at the border. I've been coming almost every day on the hopes that it's going to open. But unfortunately, every day, there's no news. We don't know whether we can leave or stay. So I ask, I ask the people out there, the people who have a heart, who do care, to find us a safe haven, or at least get, get us out of Gaza. That was a man named Noor al-Atta in Rafah, right at the border crossing with Egypt. He, like many Palestinians, are desperate to escape as Israel and Hamas continue this war. But Egypt and other Arab countries at this point unwilling to take in Palestinian refugees. Egypt's president said this week Gazans must, quote, stay steadfast and remain on their land. And while Egypt is keeping refugees out, the country has agreed to open that southern border for humanitarian aid to go in. That's according to President Biden. Much more on this in the big picture. We have our senior global affairs analyst, Viana Goladriga, with us now. Thank you for being here. 
so now it's a it's about proving it, right? It's about LCC proving what Biden says that he agreed to. That's yeah. what matters so much. Remember the meeting that Biden had hoped to have with yeah. the regional leaders was canceled. So this was the the big takeaway deliverable that Biden came back with was at least getting what twenty trucks. I mean, mm-hmm. the least you can get through this crossing. Anything would be helpful for the people who are desperate, the innocent people who are desperate for AIDS inside. But you know, taking a big picture look, this goes back many many decades. And remember, in 1967, when Israel was attacked by Egypt, by Jordan, by Syria, Israel walked away with more territory, including the West Bank, including Gaza. Now, since then, Egypt and Jordan are both saying, we are home, as you noted in the intro, to millions of refugees ourselves. Egypt, I believe, houses about 9 million refugees, and Jordan, over 1 million. The United States providing aid to both countries for years as well, which is why the president is leaning on that aid in the push to to get Egypt specifically to participate here. But Egypt and LCC said yesterday, we're not taking any more of these Palestinians in for a number of reasons. Both Egypt and Jordan are fearful that uh, this may be a push by the Israelis to permanently displace uh, these Gazan residents. Israel saying, no, we will have them return. But after this war, they're not really buying that. LCC yesterday said, I don't know if it was in jest or what, that that Israel should send them to the south of the country, to the Negev desert. That is a Mm non-starter. So going through the particular options here, it speaks to a bigger issue. These are countries that have normalized relations with Israel. Egypt back in 1979, Jordan in 1994. And they're saying that if these people, if these some of them terrorists cross into our border, this war could expand beyond just Hamas and Israel to perhaps even within Egypt and Jordanian borders and that that could really impact whatever peace treaties they have. So clearly there's a a lot to sift through here, but you understand how convoluted this issue is. Well, and then you add the Iranian influence as well that plays a role in all of this. We have been talking about the risks of escalation. And you talk about the countries that border uh, Israel, where they stand, why they stand there, why their public statements may differ from where you think they would be diplomatically. And you also have, uh, we've talked a lot about Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which Iran supports, Hezbollah, which is absolutely a proxy of Iran. But it's also uh, Iranian militia groups in Iraq, in Syria, uh, Bahrain as well, Yemen. There's been a war, an ongoing war in Yemen for a long period of time, a ceasefire right now. What does that do to the risks here? Well, it destabilizes the whole region, which is why people looking at this say that Iran stands to gain the most from any instability here. Because you speak to uh, the leaders of Egypt, of Jordan, of UAE, the countries that have normalized relations with Israel. Yes, behind the scenes, The Economist has a piece out this morning. Behind the scenes, they they say they've been shocked by what these leaders say to them privately about how they feel about Hamas. No different, they said, than some right-wing extremists in Israel. But when it comes to the people on the streets, they are largely pro-Palestinian, pro-Palestinian cause. So while the leaders may have been trying to circumvent uh, Allah Netanyahu, the Palestinian case— in, in order to maintain relations and build on relations, perhaps even normalizing relations with the Saudis. This really threw a wrench into that cause. And if you look at who would benefit the most from that, it would be Syria. It would be um, Iran, which is why so much of the focus is on northern Israel now. And what, if anything, Hezbollah would do, given a green light and from just Iran. What about not at that point? The uh, Israelis, IDF, said overnight that there are the skirmishes, is the word they use, between Hezbollah and the south of Lebanon— and the north of Israel got much 
more frequent and worse in the last 24 hours. Yeah. What does that tell you? Really testing the waters here to see how far Israel would go, skirmishes they could handle. But could they handle a two-front war? at the scale that Hezbollah specifically is capable of. Now, even the Hezbollah, the leader after 2007 said that that conflict and that war uh, was very costly for them. And they did not expect to see the intensity coming at them from Israel. Israel saying that they could do the same now, but this would be a costly battle. And what's the U.S. going to do now that we've got two carrier strikers right in the region? So a lot to watch out for. Diana, thank you, as always. Very helpful. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.